hello. Uh, hi, Christy. Hi, David. How are you doing? I am great. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> so formal. Uh, yeah. This is uh, this is a thing. We're here. We're back for it. Um, we are online for some weird reason. We're in the same house. <laughs> There's no reason for us to be talking to each other online from uh, sometimes sometimes it's just too much to sit across from each other in the same room yeah. and we just have to sequester ourselves into separate rooms <laughs> and do this online yeah this is a uh, managing quarantine we, i'm ready to kill you and you me so it's better if we're in separate rooms oh man you took that to the dark place <laughs> i did should i call the police now <gasps> who's that who was that <laughs> oh hello oh Oh, hello. Why, Kirsten, is that Hi. you? It is. This is Kirsten. Hello. Hi. That is longtime friend of the podcast, Kirsten, who we've mentioned in reference on several occasions, and who runs our uh, very fun Monster of the Week game. That's Finally, a very on warm the introduction. I appreciate yeah. it. Hello. Glad <laughs> to be here. Yeah, that uh, boy, you sure startled us. There's no way we could have known you were lying in wait. I had no idea you were just gonna pop in. It sounds like Discord a good thing chat. that I interrupted your your murder plotting. That's true. If we talked about it any longer, we were gonna. It was probably gonna come. You come were gonna to follow blows. through on it. Yeah. So thanks for saving our lives. You're welcome. Yeah. This is anytime. I, That's what I'm here for. Actually, what I'm like, not here to be on the podcast. I want to be extremely clear that that is not true. And uh, Christia and I have done pretty damned well. Uh, by, yeah. by ourselves for these last crazy number of months. In, in fact, last night we sat up and talked until like two in the morning about stuff we already knew about about each other <laughs> <That's> <laughs> for good. the umpteenth time. But well, sometimes we just like to talk about past emotional traumas. <laughs> <laughs> it's like once every six months, let's like uh, go through the hits of like why let's, we're crazy. Let's really dig into it. <laughs> let's poke the bruise. <laughs> Uh, I don't know like why we do that, but yeah, yeah, for your trauma. <laughs> so I think part of it is because I've been listening to this podcast uh, for the second time. I've already listened to the podcast, but it's called "Something Was Wrong," and it's about a person who um, was in a relationship with uh, someone who basically turns out to be a sociopath. It was very manipulative, and it's all about how that happened and how she realized the situation and got out of it. And then that's the first season, and then every season after that is about someone different, but it's always about a somewhat similar situation where there's someone who's a manipulator. And so we just, like, I've been wanting him to listen to this podcast, and we were talking about it, and uh, all this stuff. We just started talking about all of our past <laughs> issues with manipulative people. It's, you know, it's... Uh... It's what we do. <laughs> of the things that you could do at two in the morning, I don't think that that's, you know, the worst. Yeah, right. True. Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, we could be out, you know, like, uh, doing smashing <laughs> grabs, but instead... We're inside working on our feelings. Yeah. What if we did smash and grabs while we discussed our feelings? <laughs> well, then we'd be like 80 bucks richer right now, wouldn't we? Yeah. Do you remember that time someone broke into our cars to steal all the change in them? I do. Aww. That was, and uh... how that doesn't really seem worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they broke into like a bunch of cars on the street. And like, I remember the neighbors coming over and be like, hey, is your car like just unlocked? And I'm like, weird. Yeah. And then. My change cup was empty, and I'm like, 
You went to a lot of risk for like 87 cents. Well, I noticed my glove compartment was open. I was taking Bo to the park and I was like, my glove compartment's open. That's weird. Mm-hmm. And then when I got back, you were like, uh, yeah, you know how your glove compartment was open? Bo didn't accidentally bump it like you thought he did. Someone was in our cars. Yeah. Which is a bad I think feeling. They, yeah. I think they tried to steal the neighbor's truck. Oh, shit. You're right. I forgot. So, yeah. They, like, they someone did a really like, bad job of it. They, like, got in the... <laughs> well, got, what were you going to say? Did they not succeed in stealing it? And that's they why they did such a bad job. Yeah. They did not. They, like, got in tried to start it, reversed it out of the driveway, hit a pole or something, and ran away. Oh. Um, well. <laughs> it's been a long time. Since, yeah, that was many years ago. Um, I want to switch anyway. gears for a second and ask, what is the deal with turnips, and why are they so important in Animal Crossing? Oh, <laughs> well, so I think that this question has a couple of possible answers, and I need to clear my throat first. Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Yep. <laughs> That was going to come out really, like, disgusting mm. uh, if I didn't take a pause. So, you know, instead of causing gross audio, I just talked about the gross audio, which is still audio. We're, Good job. We're here, Good we're here for the phlegm. <laughs> we're here for all of the uh, the the bodily noises, as we discussed before yeah. recording. Yeah. So, as we've discussed, if you call it Foley work, everything is free game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so turnips and Animal Crossing yeah. are very important to many people. And a dissertation by other people. Yeah. This is my TED talk. Thank yeah. you for coming. <laughs> so, I think the one thing about them is really cute, which is um, so this little piglet called Daisy May comes to your island only on Sundays and only in the morning before noon. So, 5 a.m. to noon is your buying window. <laughs> and she comes and she's like, Hey, I have turnips. You can buy turnips from Sow Jones Stalk Market. No. S T A L K. <laughs> Because her grandma is Grandma Sow Jones, because she's a pig, so she's a sow. Uh, And then Monday through Saturday, there will be one price in the morning and one price in the evening that at the shop on your island, you can sell them and these prices will fluctuate. So much like a stock market, you can buy a lot of turnips and you have to buy them in stacks of 10. You cannot buy single turnips. It's like bundling stocks. Uh, and then you can play the market. Also, uh, the reason that I was desperate to get some this week is you can eat them 10 at a time since they're in a stack. So you can eat fruit, you can eat eggs, you can eat these turnips. And if you want to dig up, I don't know, grown mature trees to move them around because you compulsively reorganize your island every week like I do, you can eat 10, fill up your inventory and dig up the full trees, which you can't do if you haven't eaten something like you just bonk it with your shovel otherwise. So I wanted to make sure that I could power up. And then I I bought more than I needed in hopes that somebody I know will have a nice price because a little spare cash is nice. I do have one friend who made 7 million bells like farming turnips across a time-traveled island (laughs) and a not time-traveled island, which to me is stressful and too much like my real life. (laughs) Wait a minute, wait, a time-traveled island? So like what, like they... What? Yeah, so Animal Crossing is real time, and it's based off of your console's uh, set time. So in this case, the Switch. Uh, but you could time travel on like GameCube as well. And so if you were to set your island to say it's Sunday at 9 a.m. and I had my island at Monday afternoon, and my price was like they were buying turnips at four hundred dollars a turnip or bells a turnip, you could, like I could go to your island, which would be at Sunday, go buy a bunch of them for like ninety eight bells per turnip. 
and then just travel back to my island where it's Monday and sell those over and over and over again. Oh my god! Because in game it's two different days, subverting the the no buying turnips on Sundays thing and getting a guaranteed profit. And I want to be clear because this might make people mad. I am not judging this. I just find it stressful and I don't engage in it. It's, I, it's I am fine with other people doing the turnip churning and, and time traveling. It's whatever. I don't care. Um, I just think <sighs> it's a lot to me and it causes me stress. Whereas I play this game to reduce stress. Yeah. Man, yeah, people are really working the Animal Crossing system. <laughs> I know. And more power to them. But I'm with you. That's like, this is causing me anxiety. <laughs> I, and I everything to... you've just talked about of like all of these details of this happens then and you can do this to root up trees. I'm like, this is so much information. I just <laughs> like, I would never figure this out if I were in the game. I would be so lost and I'd just be like, I'm done. After like, this is why I don't play games like but open world games. then you can games. just talk to your cute villagers on your island and that would be yeah. fun too. Like you don't have to move things. Yeah. Yeah, I I get very overwhelmed. <laughs> Open world games are too much for me because I was like, I need someone to tell me what to do. Well, Give it's a me very quests. small world. You're on an island in the ocean, so you can't you can't wander too far. Yeah. Dave loves open world stuff. Yeah, I do. I, I what I dislike is when games become work and if you don't play it that way, it doesn't have to be. But sometimes games can be so much work. Yeah. I think that I seek out forms of escapism in which, like, in particular, money isn't really a thing. Like, I really enjoy Star Trek and the Roddenberry vision of just a world where we've yeah. moved beyond currency and also yeah. kind of in, like, you still have to buy things in Animal Crossing and it's important to have enough bells to, like, I built a basketball court on my island recently, so I needed to buy two basketball hoops, which were pretty expensive, things like that. But um, I just, like, the engagement with making money as an activity that I would partake in for like an hour is too much for me. And it, it makes me very like sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, I don't know. I don't know what, I mean, like I really enjoy uh, like uh farming type, uh, like I played a ton of Stardew Valley. Oh, I love Stardew Valley. Yeah. So like money is important in that game until it isn't. And then you're just like, it's all about just managing your land and like micromanaging every little space you have to maximize your farm and all that. But like, I think I think I sometimes gravitate towards stuff where there's a lot of like, uh, yeah, I guess space management, inventory management, like a resource management type yeah. of mechanic. Yeah, stuff like yeah. that. Don't know why that doesn't seem like it should be fun, but it is satisfying. I think that it's probably I mean, it's like a low real life buy in where you get the satisfaction of like the Marie Kondo tidying where, you know, <laughs> in the game, it doesn't take nearly as much work to do something like that and get the satisfaction of like, yes, right. This is my farm. I love it. Everything makes sense. The sprinklers reach everything. My scarecrows are cute. Like, life's yeah. good. Yeah, walking around going, does this pumpkin spark joy? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Something I used to do, which I don't think it was an escape. I think I'm a glutton for punishment. But uh, when I lived in Chicago, I worked at uh, corporate store Little Caesars. It was gross, by the way. But no. <laughs> So I worked there. And then I'd come home and I would play time management games in which I worked in a pizza shop. Oh, no. <laughs> like overcooked or whatever. Oh. And the person I was with at the time is like, why are you doing this? This is your real life. Why are you doing this? And I was like, I don't know. 
but I think part of it is like in the game, I was like, I don't know, something about like in the game, I could figure this out, and in my life, it's a mess. Like in the game, I feel like I could get good at it, but like I can't control anything in my life, so let me control yeah. this virtual version of what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I think uh, that makes sense. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just like subjecting myself to pizza related stress all day. <laughs> pizza related stress situation. It's pizza in the morning, pizza in the evening, pizza at supper time. When, pizza's when, on a bagel. when pizza's on a bagel, you have massive panic attacks about pizza. <laughs> what? I, I said know. when pizza's on a bagel, you have massive panic attacks. No, no, I heard what you said <laughs> in terms of words that are in English. Yeah. You, you don't need to repeat that. It. Uh... <laughs> That's the old classic bagel bites theme song that we all know yep. and love so well. Um, anyway. Uh, gosh, what is it? Hmm? I was gonna ask if it's too forward if I asked if you guys wanted to play a game since I'm I'm the visitor and you're the host. That's um, incredibly presumptuous and rude of you. Christy, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I guess it's just lucky that I have a game prepared. Um, <laughs> okay, that uh, that's weird too that you just happened to do that. But sure, what is it? What do you got? <clears throat> Well, um, I mean, I feel like you've probably heard of this, but it's a little old game called Trues and Fnews. Oh, oh, that game. You need to tell me why you wouldn't happen to me. It's time for Trues and Fnews. Everyone's playing. Everyone's playing. Famous game. Famous game. The game that's taken the internet by storm. It's time for Trues. A Merv Griffin production. Yeah, that game. <laughs> um, well, sh shit. Do you want to tell us how it works? Sure. Who's in news is a game, a fun little game of sweeping the internet and nation at large, Faster. in which I give you three news headlines. Faster. Two are false. <laughs> or the newest one is true or the truth, and you have to tell me which is which. I I think you did it. I, I think that made. I, I think I followed it. Jeez, um, oh, Kirsten, does that, I will this never make get sense good at that. I I feel confident moving forward into playing this game after the stunning introduction that I received from Christy. <laughs> stunning. You stellar, okay. perfect. Um, okay. Well, I guess we could play a game. I mean, you know, I ain't got, I ain't got shit to do, so uh, let's, let's hear it. <laughs> it's still quarantine time, so we can do whatever the shit we want. That's All right. right. As, yeah. As long as we're inside. All right. So, first headline. Portland man caught pickpocketing tourists fled from police on unicycle. Quickly apprehended. <laughs> All right. And number two. Recent elected president of the United States of Pupstagram, or POTUS, Instagram famous dog Doggled Trump endorses human and animal rights movements. Already better president than real life POTUS Donald Trump. You're going to need, I'm going to need that one for sure again. <laughs> yeah, it's a lengthy one. Number three. Asparagus picking trespasser in Upper Peninsula is a repeat offender, DNR says. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> These ones are complicated. Yeah, they are. All right. <laughs> so recap. Portland man caught pickpocketing tourists fled from police on unicycle. Quickly apprehended. Okay. Number two. Recently elected president of the United States of Pupstagram or POTUSP. Instagram famous dog Doggled Trump endorses human and animal rights movements. Already a better president than real-life POTUS Donald Trump. Okay. Okay. And third, asparagus, asparagus <laughs> picking trespasser in Upper Peninsula is a repeat offender, DNR says. <sighs> is there a lot of wild asparagus in northern Michigan? Yeah, what? Like, is it just all over the place <laughs> up there? And also, if you're trespassing, whose land, it, who it, owns it, those asparagus? Well, it sounds like someone who... Ah. <laughs> it sounds like it's someone someone who grows someone is growing the asparagus. And like a like a is... weed factory hidden in a forest, but it's an asparagus <laughs> trade. Right. Yeah. A heavily gar- armed guarded, uh like militia protected <laughs> asparagus farm in the woods. <laughs> okay. Uh I I have an inclination here. I think I know what it might be. All right. I think I have my choice. I was going to try to prepare some Christie style summaries, but I, I don't have any good ones. Yeah, I got I, the only one I got was the Una robber. I tried to do it this time. But that, <laughs> nice. I, that's as far as I got. <laughs> I like the Una robber. Yeah, and I'm sure there was going to be something like a pick to peck a pickled something, but like I couldn't make that. Oh work. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Well, what are your guesses? One and a half. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, Kirsten. Do you want to? Do you want to guess first, or do you want me to go first? Do we? Should we like? Am I going to influence yours by I don't, stating mine? You might. I mean, because <laughs> if I go first, you get a Monty Hall problem, and you you can you you're know right. have a fifty fifty shot. Yeah, you're right. Oh, the money hall. Well, I guess so you wouldn't know if I was correct, but you could. We can split our guesses. I don't know. I think I'm gonna go with number one. Okay, I was not. That that was not my guess. What's what's your <laughs> what's your rationale? Um, I feel like the DNR is really busy with other things to be <laughs> monitoring wild asparagus that I'm not sure could grow in northern Michigan. Like, I'm just not positive about the zone for asparagus to uh... be a perennial that far north wow that's um, that's a smart reason <laughs> <laughs> it's like already and then the was guess. just so long like right i don't know i don't trust it so so that left number one okay well that, i think that's really good reasoning i'm about, I'm about to get schooled on where asparagus grows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah boy the thing you didn't expect nah, to come you know what we don't have enough <laughs> listeners to get schooled by anybody so it's <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, okay, so I think that you're right that the second one was really long, and it feels like something Christy would write. But then again, she does, I think, use that to her advantage sometimes. You know I... her wiles better than I do. Uh, the thing is, we just we just referred to uh, Bo the other day as Bodus, um, and I wonder if that's the inspiration. So that's where my head is going. Um... I feel like asparagus might grow in cold places like that. 
I don't know. Um, I I don't know where it grows, but I also don't know about the unis the unicycling Portland robber is such a cartoon <laughs> that I feel like I'm gonna guess three. You might have okay. just you might have just Monty hauled me. Actually, I think I might have because <laughs> I was thinking two, and now I'm kind of thinking three. <laughs> Okay, so that's one, and for Kirsten, and three for you. Yeah. Dave is right. Oh, shit. The asparagus wins it. Okay. I'm impressed at the hardiness of the wild asparagus. (laughs) Yeah, can we just take a minute to give it up for asparagus and how hardy it is? (laughs) Nicely done. Good job, asparagus. Good job. Um, (laughs) So... (laughs) I, I like to usually, you know, <laughs> read the article afterwards or give some more info. So a woman trespassing to pick asparagus was busted by the DNR shortly after telling the landowner to go ahead and call the DNR. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And the landowner's like, that's a great idea. So they did. <laughs> According to an official report, the incident occurred when Robert Freeborn and Mike Evink conservation officers in DNR District 2 responded to a recreational trespass complaint involving a subject picking asparagus asparagus in Schoolcraft County. The COs arrived shortly after the call and spoke to the landowner who said a female subject was trespassing on his farmland to pick his asparagus. He added that when he told the woman she was on private property, she told him to go ahead and call the DNR. I'm impressed that the DNR. Sorry, I did. I thought you were done. I'm just impressed that the DNR like had the time and the will to to do. They respond that quickly. Yeah, it's it's like you called the police. Like they they're on it. (laughs) And they didn't just say like this is a civil matter if it's private land. I don't know. Server with a summons to get get an asparagus lawyer. (laughs) You know what? One guy was sitting at his desk going, you know, I never see any real action around here. And then this call comes in, and he goes. This is my chance. I could be a hero today. Okay, this this gets a little bit better even. I love this oh, story. After getting the suspect's description, the CEOs knew exactly who the woman was. Oh. Since they had dealt with her a few years ago for the same thing and had issued a warning, according to the report. Mm. So that's why they acted quickly is because they're like, that goddamn asparagus thief is at it again. Andy, the asparagus thief is out again. Yeah, leave, leave no, don't leave scoff laws to their natural asparagus picking ways. <laughs> the CEO is located the female suspect at her house and she eventually admitted to the trespass. The suspect also recalled being talked to by the CEOs a few years ago as well. The report will be submitted to the prosecutor's office requesting charges for the trespass, according to the report. Uh, DNR District 2 is located in the eastern Upper Peninsula and includes Al- Alger, Chippewa, Delta, Mackinac, Luce, and Schoolcraft counties. Hmm. In case anyone wanted her, to know. Can we just send her some asparagus seeds? Like, does she have yard space? <laughs> I feel like that's the best solution here. Oh, man. Right. We, we really ought to start getting some goose chase care packages together for these kinds of things. <laughs> it's like problem solved. <clears throat> Grow your own asparagus, I- lady. This story is so wholesome. I love it. Like, it's just like stealing asparagus for Lord knows what specific reason she felt the need to do that. And she keeps doing it. I just, Um, I love it so much. 
I mean, like we would have really weird things. So we didn't live on a farm, but we had land that like a neighbor farmer farmed and then would give us a cut of the proceeds. And it was pretty much always a corn soybean rotation. And we definitely saw people stealing corn, except that this was corn grown for like cattle. So it's not good (laughs) to eat. And like, I feel like corn is on the cheaper end of the food stocks. Right. I'm not shocked. Right. At least in the States, it's pretty, like, easy to get your hands on corn. Yeah. Literally, in their case. (laughs) In their case, yeah. I like the idea, though, of someone going out and being like, yeah, we're going to get this free corn, and then taking it home and just, like, sitting down happy (laughs) and then going to eat and being like, this sucks. (laughs) I can't imagine that it's good. So, like, once again, I guess I always wonder if the issue is, like, do you need food? (laughs) Can we help you in some way? Right. Like, if you would have just knocked on our door and you told us you were that desperate, we would have just fed you. Like, we're giving you some food or something. Like, surely... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah god it's just nice a, i don't know I, I you know i figure being a farmer you know your biggest problems are usually like teenagers messing around with your deer yeah know. teenagers like tearing up the fields yeah. and drinking deer, yeah. in their trucks in the middle of it to not be found how although i guess that doesn't work for asparagus because unless i'm fully <laughs> misunderstanding the plant of asparagus like, don't they just grow straight up out of the ground? Like this? Yeah, I don't think get... they grow that tall or anything. Like... <laughs> no, I think the I asparagus a... field, like in, like in signs. I have a visual aid that I will drop into this Discord so we can all, all right. look at uh, what asparagus looks like. It's exactly what you think. It's like they just took what you get in the store. Well, have you ever seen cashews? No. No. How cashews grow? No. I'll go on mute a second so that I can click clack type and I'll, I'll find a photo to share as well. Oh, you know what? I've, I, I, feel the I air. found it. That is the weirdest looking damn thing I've Drop ever seen. Drop it into the uh-huh. chat. Hold on a Dave minute. Dave on the case. Dave uh, on the case. <laughs> hold, hold on. How did I not know this abomination of a plant? <laughs> oh my goodness. It, it, okay, so for our listeners, it, you could just look up a picture, but in case you're being stubborn and don't want to, they We're kind kidding. of look like Apples, that's true. Give them excuses. For a pear. They look like a pear. <laughs> yeah, or like upside down, or almost like a bell pepper upside down, with a little fetus growing out of it, and that <laughs> fetus is the cashew. <laughs> is that what I'm looking at? The nut part is just hanging mm-hmm. on the outside of that weird Yeah, that's plant. the cashew. What do they do with yeah. the rest of that thing? What, what, what do they how? do what to the thing? Yeah, what happens to the fruit? Where does that go? I mean, I would assume that's how it seeds. Like, either things eat it and spread the seed or it, like, rots off or mm. something like that. I'm not sure why the nut grows, but that would be my guess because I think that's how most fruits, like, that's their point, right? Like, they have the seeds in them and then... Yeah. Yeah, it's really weird. I'm, I'm gonna... Away. We're gonna have to have an episode on cashews. <laughs> I think you should have an episode on nuts in general because there's also another nut that I can't remember, but, like, the people who harvest it have to wear really thick gloves because it's, like, inside of something that is very... I don't know if it's acidic, but it's, like, you can't touch it. Oh. And so you have to, like, break it open and get the nut part out and, like, wash it off, and then it's fine. Well, we already did a weird plants episode. Maybe we'll do a legumes episode. Weird legumes. <laughs> wow, we get we're gonna get real specific with this show. We're really <laughs> running the gamut here. Well, what episode are you up to now? You need you need to drill down. I know. Well, we're at we're this is episode one hundred and five. 
So uh, we, episode based- one ten is where we shift to purely produce based podcast. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's the, truly produce podcast. It's the Ooh. totally vegan goose chase. No geese involved. <laughs> Um, well, I, uh, I am honored to have uh, guessed that one, although I'm pretty <laughs> sure I, uh, the, you're right, Kirsten, the, the sort of like, for some reason I felt inclined to switch after hearing your guess. <laughs> and I think maybe it's even just that because you gave that rationale and then I had that, then I thought about that and wasn't sure if I agreed, but like you gave me a reason <laughs> to go the other way, so... Uh, thank you. Well, that would have been a great mind game if I had done it on purpose and if I had won. <laughs> right. I'm glad I could assist you. Um, Let's make an assists column for the for the tracking. Oh yeah, you're right. That actually that qualifies as one win and one assist. Yay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, oh. We want to take a little break? Yeah. A little break break? So we're running about half an hour in here. So why don't we um, take ourselves a little break, and then we'll come back with the main segment. I don't know what you researched, Kirsten, but we know that you researched the hell out of it. So, <laughs> Okay. Do you want a teaser now, or should we just take a break, and then you, you we'll, come We'll in take fresh. a break, and we could just okay. dive right into it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm curious, but let's take a break here. So uh, we'll be back in a minute. With the rest of the episode, thank you. <laughs> Stick around. Bye. All right. We're back. And oh. we're back. Mm-hmm. This episode is fun so far. I just want to say, I meant to say that when we were off the recording, but this is, this is, going, pretty, <laughs> this is going pretty nice. <laughs> For those of you listening at home, the expected emotion is fun. <laughs> yeah, right. This is like like a guy holding up a stage sign that says, have fun. If you're not it's having fun. fun, you're listening wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's not It's not, not us, fault. it's you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You yeah. just gaslight all of our listeners. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what's your problem? Didn't it's fun. you know the theme the theme was a roasting and it's you, the listener, who's being roasted? <laughs> yeah, you're getting Andy Kaufman over here. This is uh this is a big elaborate <laughs> prank on you. Um anyway, yeah, we're back. Uh so now the 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 tantalizing secret can be revealed, <laughs> which is what are we gonna talk about for the next roughly forty five minutes to an hour? So I told this to Christy. I, this isn't the topic, but I was talking with Christy offline before I put things together. And I asked her if it was okay if it was a goose meander, not a goose chase. <laughs> and she said that was cool. So I have yeah. a goose meander for you. Ooh, okay. So this is where we wander in circles and maybe see a goose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was going to say we could, like, you know, wander along a pathway that, that takes us, you know, just past some sites and and maybe those sites are geese but i guess circles might also happen okay <laughs> and oh, I, I appreciate this... sometimes we have a chill episode i think there's a place for that yeah well you know i think quite a quite a few of our episodes have just <laughs> been kind of like uh 
exploring stuff loosely, not like an investigative, you know, we're not, we're not trying to like yeah. hard hit or put someone in prison. <laughs> we're just like, right. you know, Hey, how about this thing? You didn't think about that much before. Well, think about it. One time I just talked about Indian music. So it's fine. <laughs> that was interesting. Actually, that was a, that was sh- uh, Shruti Patootie. Yeah. That's the name of that episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway. anyway, yeah, I want to know what this is. So this this mostly came out because I thought that I had a question that I could find an answer for. I was thinking about the goose chase, you know, thesis, right? What mm. is goose chase? What is a goose chase? Uh, yes, how to and describe. How how to formulate this investigative study. Mm. And it seemed to me like most of the time you kind of have like a topic or more particularly a question of like, what is this topic? What's up with this topic? What are the secrets behind this topic? Mm -hmm. And I had a really great question, in my opinion, and then I could not find an answer for it. So I'm going to present (laughs) to you all the things that I did find none of which seem to be a clear answer, uh, but that I think are interesting. And my question I, was... I like this concept. Are we free okay. to speculate wildly and uh, make uh, false conjectures based on what we hear? Sure. Uh, did you want to just take a guess at the idea before I say it? Is that why you're asking? No, I mean that once you've laid out all of this stuff, am I free to then just believe whatever I want about it and answer this uh, central oh, question however always. I please? Dave, I think that's... that a lot of people in today's environment are absolutely doing that about a lot of things. And right, if you do that about this topic, like it's not the worst thing. So sure. <laughs> Good. All right. <laughs> it's pretty low stakes if you have a, 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 a completely made up opinion about this. one. <laughs> feel, feel free to also ignore any facts she does present. Right. Uh, and and have an opinion not based on anything at all. Yeah, I'm going to go in with an, a, a free-formed opinion and basically learn nothing. Let's get this started. <laughs> Excellent. That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> so my question that I thought of that I thought would be interesting was, um, you know how sometimes in movies that have a procedural law enforcement type uh, thing – Sometimes there's that person who's like wanted across the country for doing crimes. Maybe specifically they're a hacker and they wear fingerless gloves. You know how frequently that person gets like offered a really nice job because they're like, you're the worst menace we've ever seen on the globe. How would you like to come work for us so that we can use your talent? Yeah, Yeah. that's definitely like a trope I've seen multiple times. Yeah. So I was wondering if there are really hackers who get FBI or similar job offers after they get caught. Whoa, okay. Interesting. I and like this. Excellent. So for the listeners who don't know me, I don't want to go too much into like myself or my job because it's not your business. <laughs> <laughs> I do work in computer security. Uh, that's my whole background. It's uh, what my degree is in and things like that. I do not in particular do a lot of hacking. Mm-hmm. I have done a little bit of like what would be called offensive security, which is kind of this testing approach of like being paid to break into a building to see what the weaknesses are that you could get into it with being paid to social engineer people and try to get information that they shouldn't be giving out so that they can enhance their training, things like that. But I am absolutely not a hacker. So this was interesting to me in that it was tangential to what I do and things that I know about, but I don't really know much about it. This is awesome. 
I'm very because yeah no like I'm super interested in this kind of stuff like especially like uh just how the the human vulnerability element to everything and how like so often when you know when when like something when someone's you know network is compromised or data is given out or someone gets access they shouldn't like how often it's just it, it just just people being dumb and typing their password in on the wrong page it's just like these like simple social engineering tricks and stuff like that that very much interests well, me I think it's also important to consider that a lot of these things are aspects of the human condition and in particular, like a desired effect, like frequently people want to just help other people. And if you see somebody at your building who forgot their badge and you're like, kind of sure you've seen them before. Yeah. It's nice to hold the door open for people until or unless you work at like the department of defense. Right. Right. So I don't want to code this as dumb, but yeah, it's usually very, it's not, super technical frequently anytime you see a breach announcement or something they say a very sophisticated cyber attack was launched against our organization <laughs> and we fell victim to these elite attackers and yeah. it's like you stored something where you shouldn't have and it had all of your login information yeah. in it. Well, they also they, yeah. they have to call it sophisticated because the alternative is just doesn't look good for them or anybody well, else right well the alternative is we did something dumb and human and it can and will happen again. You like out of a desire and that's to be not helpful. What your clients, yeah, that's not what your clients want to hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. That's my opinion on it, at least uh, working in the industry. Like I am frequently flogging the idea that everybody is kind of on a cycle of having bad things happen uh, because mistakes get made. And it's important to A, have layered security so that one mistake hopefully doesn't lead you to the secret Coca-Cola formula. (laughs) And also that like to vilify an action as stupid or as like a mistake. I I lost my wallet earlier this year. And up until that happened, I would have thought any idiot who didn't keep track of their wallet while traveling was stupid and like doesn't (laughs) deserve to have a wallet. And then I think that I honestly like full on lost it into the trash or something like out of my pocket yeah um and that stunk and it was a real dose of like attitude adjustment for me yeah that's that's (laughs) helpful i'll tell you i'll tell you just since we're still on this subject i have been i have been the guy who got a link um didn't quite know what it was you know went to a page i'm presented with the microsoft login portal and only after i had entered my password and was told it was the wrong password did i look at the url and go this is a honeypot. And it like had to immediately like contact my IT people and just be like, whoops, hey, um, I just changed my password. This just happened. Um, yeah, that's very common. Yeah, I think it's very, very easy to make that mistake. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're just not we're not always on guard and you would kind of have to be constantly on guard to avoid making <laughs> simple mistakes like this. Yeah, I mean, and if you I take can... into consideration, like, was it a morning? Were you rushing to something? Yeah. Had you had coffee yet? Did you have a rough commute in? Like, our right. brains can only do so much. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, no one, no one can be perfect. I think you're right. Maybe it should be. Uh, I should be. I should kind of, you know, watch how I talk about this because it's not necessarily dumb uh, or you know whatever. It's just well, it it just it makes you feel that way because it's so simple. And you're like, I should have known better. But there's a reason these things work because, like, they work. Like, like Kirsten said, like, there's so many factors why we would let our guard down. We're never expecting 
someone to do that. So um, I also wanted to share a brief story about like, so losing things in general and things like would be really bad for someone else to find and use. Yeah. And then, and then, the then eventually, is- eventually then we can get to the actual topic. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. It's fine. It's fine. In the, in the middle of this pandemic, when like I'm, I'm obviously stressed out going shopping, uh, I went to a grocery store and I was stressed out. It was horrible. It was a grocery store I haven't really gone to during this because they tend to be busier. And it was as bad as I thought it would be. And by the end of it, I was so frazzled. I, like, leave the store. I get everything in the car, return the cart. I'm about to go and realize I don't have my keys. And I, like, had to go back into the store. And luckily, someone turned them in. It was fine. But I realized the reason I dropped them is because my pants didn't have pockets in them. Uh And I kept forgetting that. And like trying to put trying things to put in, in my your pockets pocket. all day and i think what i literally did was i walked into the store and wanted easy access to my keys and i put my keys in my pocket which didn't exist and i just literally <laughs> threw my keys on the ground at the grocery store without knowing awesome <laughs> yeah i also blame the structure of the pants that i was wearing at the time for this because they had yeah. like, not incredibly shallow back pockets but like my wallet just fit and I absolutely believe that I was like picking up my luggage or using the bathroom or something, and it like came out Shell because out. of dumb girl shallow pockets. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's blame the clothing manufacturers yeah. for I, all of this. I do not understand women's pockets and why you can't hold anything in them. It's it's a it's a bothersome it's, thing how small those pockets can be. It's, it's the purse manufacturers. It's it's big purse. It's big bag. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but they you, want you know. us to wear purses, and so they they make our pockets tiny and unfunctional. <laughs> it's <laughs> also the upholding of like insane, the lines over but, functionality, and it's infuriating yeah. to me. Uh, yeah. What? It's, like you don't have pocket lines. This assumption that women are solely obsessed with how clothing fits and don't want functionality (laughs) can we have some kind of like combo deal like you do it i'm fine with being lumpy it's honestly okay with me i worked hard to get here and i'm pleased with the status so i would like pockets (laughs) i mean i'm already lumpy for other reasons (laughs) i'm fine with having a couple of my lumps be because of keys in a wallet like (laughs) Because other reasons. Mm. Anyway, we have have really, really gotten away from what you were going to say. (laughs) That's okay. I really like when you guys do longer episodes because usually I would be in the office at work and I would get that like 2 to 2.30 p.m. slump. Yeah. And I would hold on to the goose chase episodes to for then. And so if the episode was like two hours long, yeah. I was done with work when it was done. Yeah. And I could leave and it was great. So <laughs> well, maybe other people will like that too. I can't really listen to this one. <laughs> oh really? You don't think so? Oh, I I don't think I've ever watched like a talk or an interview or anything that I've ever given. <laughs> well, you know, uh having the weird experience of recording our own voices for years i will say you get used to it yeah we're used to it now um i'm sure we've talked about it before but there's that interesting thing about how your inner ear broadcasts your voice to your head in this like 
the it's like, like deeper in your head right because yeah of your bones or mm-hmm. something yeah so like when you hear yourself on recording you're like i sound weird and tinny and like like my voice sounds high like what the hell is that uh but after a really long time you stop hearing that which is weird kind of like how selfies look strange because you see yourself only in the mirror and then like you see your face everybody sees it in the in the photo yeah and And then and then you're like man i really have to change the way i part my hair (laughs) 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 yeah i don't look nearly as good as uh that guy in the mirror Uh, he's got he's got it figured out this is way off topic, it and sure I'm sorry, is. but I once listened to some kind of it was like a podcast or something or news. I think NPR or something, just talking to someone who claimed that he decided to change his hair's part, and it completely changed his whole life. <laughs> and it was like such a funny take. I'm sorry that I was like, I have to know more about this. <laughs> it changed my life. That's a yeah, big like claim. Yeah, <laughs> like, like he became more approachable and had better relationships with people. And I think part of it was it increases confidence, and that's why you had those changes. But his take was like literally parting his hair changed the way people saw him and improved his life. And I was like, well, people who parted on the left are just just garbage, and right. we all know that. Yes, so. that was like what he was going for. He's like, I didn't realize I was doing it wrong because I saw myself in the mirror, but now I do it right, and my life is better. And I'm like, this is weird. He's just he's sitting in an easy chair, going, "Those those left parters are ruining this country. These we need a yeah. right we need a right parter movement." It's, it's like quaffing his he's, hair he's talking about the left and you think he's talking about politics and he's talking about people who part their hair on the left <laughs> oh it's stupid i'm sorry oh boy um all right anyway back to the topic at hand please <laughs> <laughs> okay so the the genesis of this question was two things mm-hmm. um one around this time wired published an article on marcus hutchins which is uh, a person who ran a blog called malware tech or went by the handle malware tech or malware tech blog mm-hmm. and if you remember do you remember wanna cry yes very much big bad malware. i didn't hear what you said wanna cry it was the okay. name of a piece of uh, malware, basically, and uh, some amount of time ago, because time has lost meaning, I think it was a few years, he was credited with stopping this um, pretty publicly because he dabbled in like malware reversing and was really good at getting into botnets and understanding how they worked and things like that. And he published on Twitter like, hey, I found out that uh, WannaCry calls out to this web address. And it seems like uh, it's doing that before it does anything else. So I registered the domain and then somebody else was like, hey, infections are still spreading, but they're not encrypting things like whatever you did worked. And he was basically the guy who saved the whole Internet. Oh, my God. From this piece of malware. But (laughs) I didn't know uh, that. Yeah. So catch later that year, I think this is all just off the top of my head of Twitter news. Um, He was arrested. He came into the U S because he is a UK citizen and he came into the U S to basically come hang out at DEF CON, which absolutely I would, if I were the guy who saved the internet, like I would (laughs) party and receive free drinks for the week. Yeah. You're a hero. Over and over again. Right. Uh, And then before he was allowed to leave, he was picked up by U S law enforcement. And at first a ton of, 
people in the information security like online space were like you confuse this the department of justice screwed this up like he fixed this there's no way he did it because mm. you know some people thought maybe he released it and so that he could look like a hero like fireman setting fire type of thing yeah um, yeah but a lot of people were like this is absolutely wrong like you you messed up and then information started to come out that this was actually about a banking trojan that he had been involved in the creation of many years before so he got very popular and was recognized due oh. to stopping this really bad piece of malware. <laughs> and that kind of brought him up into the light of like, hey, doesn't this person, like, aren't they on our little string corkboard of like people involved in creating <laughs> this other thing? That, yeah. Uh, so anyway, the article is titled The Confessions of Marcus Hutchins, The Man Who Saved the Internet. And what led me to this question rather than just like talking about him was that at some point, once he got clearance from his lawyers to talk a little bit about this, he was worried about those people who were like defending him nearly to the death because he was like, yeah, like I did this nice thing, but they all think that this is a mistake and they need to understand that like I did also do bad things. And I understand that it was a long time ago, but I still did them. And so he tweeted a couple of tweets uh, I think he had been, maybe he was out on bail or supervision or something like that. Around this time, his lawyers cleared a couple of short tweets and he said something that was like, I really appreciate all your support. This isn't a miscommunication about WannaCry. And then he added, there's a misconception that to be a security expert, you must dabble in the dark side. It's not true. You can learn everything you need to know legally, stick to the good side. Because there's also generally this narrative of, well... I figured out everything I know about information security or I found information security exciting because I did this dumb thing when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. I've known people who like hacked into their school servers, into their email servers, things like that. Yeah. Um, and that's fair. And I, I don't disagree with it. Like being a stupid teenager can lead you to much wiser decisions. It seems like this was the case, but he was saying like, I don't want to be a part of that narrative you can still know all these things, especially today with how many people are on the internet, like by not doing this. So please don't follow my footsteps. Like don't write don't malware in order a, to learn how to make undo me malware. a hero and use me as an example of what you should do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. So that was, that was story number one that made me think about this. And so I was wondering like, are there people who do things like this? Is this still a trope anymore that we're still still operating on that you break into a lot of things and then there's a turning point where somebody recognizes how smart you are and that you just need a challenge and that you're just acting out and they give you something right and this wasn't quite the same but i remembered my english teacher from high school um i so she was my english and my spanish teacher i cannot remember her name i've been trying to think of it for like a week <laughs> sorry uh but uh i in late high school, you know, everybody's doing the, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? In my area, not a lot of people went to college in any real way. And definitely not a lot of people like moved very far away. Mm -hmm. uh, so I felt very overwhelmed in trying to parse out all these different things that I could do because I definitely really wanted to leave. Yeah. And I wanted to find something that had like good employment opportunities that was also interesting. And I was 16. And so this sucked. And I was mm -hmm. talking to my English teacher because she was very kind. And I was talking to her about how I thought maybe something with computers would be interesting. Like I had heard that computer investigations and forensics and, and things like that maybe were an emerging field that had 
good employment opportunities. And she was like, oh, I had a girlfriend in school, in college, when I went to college, who, and she's one of those people who uses girlfriend as like a friend who is a, a girl, friend. which I yeah. find confusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's confusing, I think, to our generation. My, my mom does that too. It's confusing yeah. to our generation because we're like, oh, okay, yeah, you have a girlfriend. And then you realize that's not, we have different definitions of the term. Yeah, then they mention their husband, and I'm like, okay, fine, cool, like, whatever. And they're <laughs> like, what? And I'm like, oh. Yeah, I think their their generation just assumed there was only one kind of girlfriend. You know, right. that, that's really how they talked about it. They didn't, you know, yeah. didn't allow for the possibility. Yeah, yeah this was clearly, like, a, a warm and interesting memory for her. She's like, oh, I had this girlfriend in my class in college, and I, I – I'm pretty sure that she said that she studied Russian and computer science Hmm. and my teacher was older and this does line up with potentially like cold war era stuff. Oh yeah. Um, I wonder if she was learning like COBOL or something like that, that was very much used by the government at the time. And she says, my teacher said that her friend was approached by like representatives of law enforcement or government around graduation and basically like, Hey, we noticed you're studying these two things. Mm-hmm. Come work for us. Yeah. <laughs> but that's still roll. not really this, the, the question, right? Like that's still not really the brief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the one, two combo. I, that's a uh, Russian and uh Russian and program yeah. at that time is like, that's how we, that's how we get these ruskies. <laughs> I, the, the character I think about when I think about this trope is um, Penelope Garcia from Criminal Minds. Yeah. Um, and her, her backstory on the show is that she was this hacker and like was hacking the FBI and stuff. And I, I mean, hacking in the way that it's <laughs> hacking in TV shows of lots of typing <laughs> and people like tag teaming a keyboard. Like that's going to help. That's and, my like, favorite thing is hacking on TV. NCIS, right? Where they bolster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was NCIS, which is like my favorite thing. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Penelope Garcia's backstory is that she was this really good hacker and she broke into the FBI and thought she was in loads of trouble. And they ended up saying, OK, you have a choice. You we give you a job and you switch sides or you are going to go to prison. And she ended up working for the FBI and being a delightful character. But <laughs> but that's what I think of. And also, I think it's the kid, the the guy who's um, the movie Catch Me If You Can is about, mm-hmm. was Frank he offered Abigail? a job? Yeah, as well. I feel like. I remember that, like, I'm pretty sure I know that I've read his book and I think that he went into like consulting and speech work, but I'm not sure if he was offered any kind of uh, government or law enforcement type work. Mm. All right. But I don't know off the top of my head. I did not uh, reread that book for this. <laughs> but you did read you like did, two you books. You read a couple this. other ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a great transition because so I had two books that wove into each other very well. And then I had a third book that I incidentally was reading in between like targeted reading for this where I just picked up a book out of my library list. And realized it fell into this. So that one, I don't have any threads to weave in well, but I figured I'd bring it up first. And that is Code Girls, the untold story of the American women codebreakers of World War II. The author is Liza Mundy. Yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, it's in the same vein as, I think, you know, Hidden Figures and a lot Mm -hmm. of other 
books that have been made into TV shows or movies recently surrounding lesser covered people who were part of huge government, not jobs, uh, campaigns, I guess. Yeah. I guess campaign is the word. Yeah. So the, the way that this fits in very well is very similar to my teacher's story, which I think makes sense because I suspect that these were similar approaches that the military undertook. And the book is very detailed in some ways. Um, I don't, I guess I have a mixed recommendation for the book. I feel like it was trying to be two books. One, which was a lot of data about cryptography and cryptanalysis and breaking these codes. And one, which was a lot of personal interest dot grew up on a farm in Oklahoma. Her younger <laughs> sister's name was Jean, that kind of thing. Oh, and okay. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah it's like, yeah, I am in the, if I'm in this for the meat of like, what was the operation? What was the, what was new? What was the, the technology essentially? I don't maybe necessarily want the bio pick part of it as well like i right like romanticizing someone's life and all the details of it and how it led them that led them to where they are and also here's a lot about cryptography <laughs> right yeah, it's a like little bit audiences aren't they it feels like they're very different right. audiences yeah one of them is here are the details of the enigma machine how it worked and how the japanese variants of the machine worked and one is seven pages of letters that were exchanged between this young woman working in this job and her beau <laughs> thanks <laughs> yeah Sorry, that's not like a they didn't, just... it feels Go like ahead. they didn't want to alienate anyone like they wanted it to be a book that appealed to a wide audience and then the yeah. they ended up like i don't know making maybe a poor choice of like trying to be inclusive instead of just like picking an audience and trusting that people would like, like it and learn from it. Yeah. Or... Just like, they just didn't narrow the field enough. Yeah. Or doing like half and half, give me a part one and a part two and I'll skim read yeah. what I don't want to read and get right. to the rest. That is to say like, Still, if this sounds appealing to listeners, please go get it from your local library. I don't know that I would buy it and keep it in my collection. I live in an apartment. I have to be choosy about what I'm actually picking up copies of. It's not a bad read. Don't feel bad if you skim certain parts to get to others, if you prefer one or the other. But the long and short of it is that it kind of half follows these women and half follows the military as the military... For whatever reason, probably just competitiveness, it sounds like the Army and the Navy started separate parallel code-breaking departments. Mm -hmm. And at the time, World War II is going on. That's why they need code-breakers. They're basically shipping out all of the men who are allowed to be deployed overseas. Oh. And the women aren't. And so they go, crap, we need people to stay here and do this code-breaking. What can we do? And somebody has the idea, hey, we could reach out to these women's colleges, mostly ones that are affiliated with pretty upper-crust Northeast U.S. colleges. So... Mm. Brown is a bad example because I do remember specifically that Brown and its women's college got like blacklisted because a professor said something to somebody about how prestigious they were and how great it was that they were contacted by the government to recruit students from their ranks for this job. And everybody nice. in the military went, nope, that's the one thing we told you not to do. You're out. But schools like that, their women's colleges, they asked professors and deans to select students that they thought would be good at the job who are women who are studying things maybe like languages or linguistics or things like that mm -hmm. and then Once would again, send them 
the men are away. I guess we'll go with our second choice, the women. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you love... You love so they summon them to to meetings or send them letters. You love the two questions that they asked, which at the beginning were, "Do you like crossword puzzles?" and "Are you engaged to be married?" Guess which answers they wanted. Uh, I'm oh, sure hoping geez. for yes and no, yes. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah, because you're going to be too busy uh, making home and making babies. Yeah, Bir- birthing <laughs> babies and breaking and... codes don't mix. Yeah. Uh, This eventually expanded and they would have recruiters in a lot of different towns. They would start looking for teachers or people who had been teachers in the past who weren't anymore. Uh, Pretty big struggle, probably unsurprising to figure out how to quantify what traits a person would have or what interests or how to find these people to be good at this work because crypt analysis and code breaking is hard. I wouldn't want to do it all day, every day. Yeah. Yeah. I have this mental image of a bunch of like retired teachers in like the the teacher vests, like <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, like the the really silly like vests and sweaters that teachers wear for school pictures, mm-hmm. and so like elementary school teachers sitting in a room breaking codes. <laughs> yeah, that's what I choose to believe happened. Goodness, I think at one point they all got to wear very like a variant of uniform. That was made hmm. for them, but at first that could have definitely been possible. I think. <laughs> yeah, I like it. the The vest had like little computers and keyboards on them and <laughs> <laughs> ciphers. You get a little button brooch that's uh, just uh, got like an adding machine on it or something. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So you you mentioned the Enigma machine. So mm-hmm. this is all part of that project. This is. Yeah. Right. So the Enigma machine was one enciphering machine, basically. And then the book talks, I think, a lot more about the Japanese machines. I don't know if maybe these were, maybe the Enigma machine had been popped by this time, and so they were working on these other two. They called them red and purple. And one anecdote that I really enjoyed was somebody, so my edition of the book was a later updated version, so it had some additional end material. And somebody, I guess, wrote or told the author that uh, they took their mom to some sort of museum and there was a purple machine, one of the Japanese enciphering machines. And she was like, oh, no, we're not supposed to talk about that. Like, that's on display. I guess we can talk about that now because the security culture of keeping your mouth shut about everything that you're doing or else you could, you know, sink a ship was so ingrained in these women. Whoa. They were told if anybody asks you what you do for the Navy, you say, oh, I keep the ink wells filled and I get people what they need and you know I, I just make sure things run smoothly I, and I'm an office of assistant I'm a receptionist yeah. nothing to see here whoa I can't imagine like just instinctively keeping a secret that long I mean like the the you know whole the, lives yeah like the war how long since that war ended <laughs> that like you know and like technology has moved way beyond that you would think you'd just know, okay, well, it's probably okay to talk about this. Um, but yeah, but I think you're right. It's the in- it's the installation of that, like, the imperative not to say something that gets someone hurt. Right. Wow. I love that, that anecdote, though. <laughs> yeah, me too. There were several that were like that. Somebody, I think, saw a 60 Minutes special talking about it, and... <laughs> This one was also good. 
it was a child and mom and dad and mom had been a code breaker and they're all watching I think 60 minutes and they're talking about the women code breakers who were enlisted to do this work and I think that kid or dad said something about mom weren't you in the navy at that time and dad starts to say yeah she was the secretary that did this and she goes no i broke that code i was on the team they were talking about <laughs> i figured out like these types of messages because nobody her family didn't know until then and she saw that on tv and said oh i must be able to freely discuss this now and corrected her oh, husband of who knows how many years <laughs> but no she had been breaking foreign ciphers for years wow i I don't know why but something about that makes me want to cry the the quiet the quiet like heroic quality of just like doing your duty and saying nothing and getting no recognition until the world says it's okay to talk about it you could be about no like i did this big thing yeah right no recognition, no pension, and keep going to work even if you just uncovered a message that says that the ship you know your brother was on was sunk by the army oh, <laughs> like, forever. Yeah. It's it's a heavy read. There's a lot of really good interesting stuff in it. I think the data is really good. The author did an incredible amount of work, clearly interviewed a ton of people. Yeah, I just personally didn't really love the way that it was put together with kind of mishmashes of chapters or portions about people's slice of life and then with the data i blame the editor yeah Yeah. you know now that i'm thinking about it i think that might appeal to me though i think i might want to read this book because yeah that it sounds really interesting you know like even if it is maybe a little bit of like a scattershot approach i think that the personal stories of these people like i mean assuming (laughs) assuming they're not written and told boringly like they have to be interesting Yeah, all of the people are certainly very interesting characters. I think that I personally am just not sentimental enough to be interested in reading these letters back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't take it. (laughs) Not not that she was a code breaker, but whenever I think about this kind of idea, I think of Julia Child. (laughs) And like the the work that she did. And and then obviously she we know her as the personality that she is and the cooking and everything, but she also like dealt with classified information and worked for the government and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, you beautiful badass. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, and that's the other thing too, is it's just like patriotic duty kind of thing for like people like, you know, in world war two, it's like, you know, this is, this is just like what we do, you know? Yeah. Um, we, we do what is needed of us because, you know, I mean, you know, like, I don't, well, I don't know. I don't have to talk. Yeah. About she that. worked for <laughs> basically, what what would become the CIA, but at the time was called the the Office of Strategic Services. Um, right after like we entered World War II, apparently, like you just said, Dave, she felt the need to serve her country, mm-hmm. and I feel like that's like the, that's the motivation for most of the women who would do this, right? Like someone comes to you and says, "This is big and important, and we need your help, and you're the ones who can help us." You don't say no to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well. Today, I mean, people are asking people to wear masks when they go to the grocery store. Right. Well, that is All just right. too much to ask. I'm sorry. Oh my God. A piece of cloth on sorry. my face. A piece of cloth on my face. It's... I'm sorry to get cynical about it, but as no. I was reading it, I was seeing the the correlation, and it was no, it was you're right. You are absolutely I saw, right. I saw a post the other day that said, you know, America's biggest mistake so far in all of this 
is telling the American public that masks are to protect other people and not themselves. Yeah, and it's true. But, and that's what frustrates me about that, because I'm like, I'm wearing my mask for you and I don't like it either, but I'm protecting you and you don't care about me and fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, isn't it? Like, you want America to do anything, convince them it has a benefit for, for themselves, which, of right. course, of course it does. That's but not immediately. Yeah. You know. It's incredibly disappointing, but we do have a very self-centered society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just our culture. It's our culture and it's it bad in a lot of ways, but that is our culture for whatever that's worth. I, just, I can't get, oh, I, we, we don't have to talk about this much more, but I just I can't <laughs> get over the idea of someone being like a piece of cloth on my face that violates my liberty. Like it's just too much to me. I'm sorry. I'm getting. I'm getting worked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We don't have to talk about this anymore. But it just like it just blows my mind. Yeah. I wonder too. Sometimes, kind of similar to, and this is my ongoing work. Uh, is is I think that sometimes I can get very angry at a lot of things and think that things are dumb. Um, and so I've been trying to reframe of like. Maybe an aspect of this is that it's very scary to engage in that behavior change because it makes it real to you and people are having a hard time with it. It doesn't really help if I see people out and about without a mask. I still get mad. Right. Um, But I think that I wonder sometimes, uh, I hope sociologists looking back write a lot of studies and narratives around this, around the different... driving forces that that led us here as compared to something like the world war ii citizen effort of things like victory gardens and cracking codes and then never speaking of them to anyone you know (laughs) yeah yeah oh goodness so that's that's kind of a loose thread that was similar and i just happened to pick up that book and i was like this was interesting it is a good read uh even though i started out a little bit negatively about it it has an incredible amount of information that i didn't know about and it's a cool story of a thing that really happened so that's neat it it fits in the uh, the government recruiting wily smart people to do a task kind of thing but uh <laughs> and they were kind of hackers you know they're they're breaking codes and yeah breaking into things uh but you know those women weren't out there (laughs) sending ciphers on passenger pigeons and getting caught so not quite the brief yeah well like how well does that book describe like the 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 particulars of the cryptography that they were working with it doesn't cover all of them but there was a lot of information about how so for example japanese would be taken from Oh, I don't know what the proper term is, but you know, uh, the way that it's written in traditional Japanese writing or, or something, mm-hmm. and then it was taken to this um, more verbal syllabic style of writing. So you're oh, spelling right. out the sound of the word as opposed to the icon that yeah, means the like word. Yeah, phonetic. And then that would be, yeah, and so that would be encoded, and each syllable would be, let's say, four numbers. And then they would tell you about how actually the first three numbers were the symbol, and the fourth number was like a, a check bit basically like i would call this a a bit if it were on a computer the bit that says yeah i was i was submitted appropriately because i add up in this specific way to meet this total number of all four numbers and so if that ever doesn't add up you know that your file got corrupted or something like that. that something like a like a checksum or whatever you would call it 
Um, it's not the same thing as a checksum. It's sometimes called like a purity bit or there's another word. A checksum is normally for a file. Like I would host a file and I would give you the MD5 checksum for the whole file. Mm -hmm. um, the bit approach maybe is used for things like if you're streaming video, I think each packet that goes across your internet, I suspect it's been a really long time since my network class and I, I don't work in streaming. Mm -hmm. um, but I would assume that that you would want the bit by bit like literal bit by bit everything has a bit at the end that tells you whether or not it made it appropriately or if it was malformed and so you shouldn't use it and you should drop it and wait oh. for it to be sent again okay this reminds me of dea numbers um so like if if a doctor is prescribing a controlled substance they have to have a registered dea number and one of the ways that pharmacists check if this is legitimate is that there are specific things that have to be a part of a DEA number. And they're pretty specific, and there's actually math involved. The numbers have to add up to a certain thing. And if they don't, that's how you know someone is faking a DEA number on a falsified, like, controlled substance. Yeah. Credit card and numbers are like this, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Credit card numbers have to pass what's called a LUN check, L-U-H-N. And so if you look at your credit card number, the first four to five digits, I think, is the type of card. So you might notice if you're on a website and you're typing it in, it'll light yeah. up like Visa as you start to type instead mm -hmm. of having the whole list of available credit card numbers. And then the middle chunk and the end chunks are different things. So the middle might continue to say, I'm not just a Visa, I'm a Visa bank card. And I'm a Visa bank card from this group of issuers. Mm -hmm. So this is the bank that I came from and I'm underwritten by Visa. And then here are my last six, I think, that identify the specific card. Uh, and those all have to add up to something. So you can, you can generate like fake credit card numbers for a given mm -hmm. carrier pretty easily that would pass that check. Mm -hmm. um, which is a common form of fraud. <laughs> wow, I did not know that. Now, uh, if I was if I was going to find, uh, you know, say the <laughs> algorithm to do that, uh, where, 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 where might I find that? I'm sure if you looked up LunCheck on Wikipedia or anything about credit card numbers, <laughs> like I was taught this in school very casually as like a flippant thing. That's part of why you have the CVV number, which is the number that's usually on the back or in the case of American Express on the front, that's three to four digits, Yeah. as mm -hmm. well as your expiration date and things like that to, to add on so okay. that it's not just the number. I um fascinating. I, I it's okay, Kristen. I was basically taught how to manufacture meth my first week. <laughs> <laughs> Between my chemistry class and my criminal justice classes, we had all the information. Oh, yeah. Christy and I are armed with dangerous, dangerous knowledge. <laughs> I see this. <laughs> I, I don't remember anything about it now, but I remember one of my professors showing us in class the exact website to go to that oh, gives no. you the ingredients. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, uh, what are you up to here? There exists, we go uh, in a rural area. <laughs> there, there's absolutely nothing like this in the world of technical writing, in case you're wondering. <laughs> the secret margin numbers. We are, we are on to you. <laughs> right. It's, uh, there's just nothing interesting uh, like that at all. But uh... <laughs> But yeah, no, okay. So, um, I, I, we we took away from where you were going with that, but uh, it's I, okay. It kind of fits in, uh, you know, talking about cracking <laughs> things and and understanding systems so that you can defraud them gets us into 
I wanted to try to look again for hackers in particular. Do yeah. hackers get caught and then get flipped to working for the government? Yeah. Um, Googling this gets you really unuseful results <laughs> because <laughs> what I found a lot of was, and I wonder sometimes if this, this was kind of a, a promo thing because it seemed like from 2014 to 2017, there were many articles regarding FBI hiring practices and in particular hiring people with technical skills, hiring hackers, all of those buzzwords mm -hmm. and phrases from places like Vice and Politico and like upstanding news organizations. But it was weird to me that there was about a three year span where this was clearly a very hot topic. And uh -huh. it could just be like, I could be a conspiracy theorist and it could just be that they were having a genuine hard time hiring. And so this <laughs> was a topic of conversation for them. But some of the articles said, the FBI can't hire any agents because all of them are smoking weed. And then some of the articles said, no, no, the FBI is not having a hard time hiring people. You know, they'll accept you on these contingencies or they've relaxed this thing or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was like, what? What was it? Because some of these articles are around the same time. Yeah. It kind of makes you... So you get a lot of articles about weed <laughs> and hackers if you search, does the FBI hire hackers? So I wonder, <laughs> yeah, it makes me wonder if they were actually trying to like make that message known somehow or just like kind of yeah dropping to various organizations like, hey, here's the story, you know, uh, you know, like 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 whether they were trying to communicate something or not. If you want one of these sweet government jobs, stop smoking the reefer. <laughs> Put down the Mary Jane, kids. Step <laughs> over here to this terminal. Man, I spent so long not smoking pot <laughs> because I knew I wanted to potentially work for the government yeah. that like then when I started like talking to people who work for these government agencies, they're like, oh, no, you don't like you don't have to like have never tried it at most places. Some are stricter than others. It depends on the organization. But most of them are like, you just have to be honest during the polygraph. Like, if you yeah. tried it, preferably it was several years before your job interview, and right. you don't do it regularly, and you, you tell them that inhale. you did it, <laughs> you never inhaled. Right. Yeah, never, never yeah. inhaled. Yeah, I think part of the reason that the FBI in particular came up for this is I wonder if, because I've heard the same thing for polygraphs and, and government clearance background checks, that they want you to be honest, and they don't want you to be like exploitable or extorted based on information. Mm -hmm. What they really don't want is for you to a have a huge gambling problem so that you'll get into debt and be leveraged against them for money yeah. or B that yeah. you don't have something that you don't tell them. And then you can be exploited over that because somebody says, give me the state secrets or I'll tell them that you smoked weed <laughs> stuff. like Yeah. That. Yeah. You just can't, but have I wonder, secrets. Yeah, I wonder if maybe the FBI had a written requirement that specifically Schedule 1 drugs, you couldn't have done them in the last three years, like not as that parameter. So like the honesty thing maybe didn't work. I'm wondering. I'm not sure. Yeah, uh, I don't work for the FBI. Um, <laughs> but all of this kind of, to me, didn't really lend itself to the idea that they were hiring hackers who did fraudulent computer hackery things because yeah. if nothing mm -hmm. else i have an assumption that somebody who's living large ripping off people with the internet and their hacking skills is also smoking weed frankly <laughs> <laughs> well they're just not scared of much are they 
uh, <laughs> right. it's like you know if, they, if that's what if you're, you're getting doing, away with something that big you probably feel like you can get away with smoking some pot right i i do wonder about like even so i always just kind of took it for granted that like there must be some kind of recruitment of people that you know use the you know their abilities to you know do the wrong thing because because it's a limited pool of people that are that talented. That's that's always the assumption I made. Um, right, and that's kind of the origin of this whole question. It's like, is this true? This must be happening. And granted, you know, all of my research could be turning up nothing because it's a secret. <laughs> well, right, that, that could be the thing. And then the other thing is, like, we might be influenced by the time that we grew up in, more or less. I mean, like, like yeah. there was a time where, like, the pool of people who were particularly skilled with computers was very very small um and i don't know if that's the case anymore like i i don't i i, I gotta think that uh the people hiring you know for like these you know uh, you know uh these types of of jobs like have a bigger pool to draw from and don't necessarily need to like you know pick through the heap of uh bad apples <laughs> do you know what i mean <laughs> Yeah, there are certainly a load of people now who are very interested in getting into hacking for a job. So at least there's a lot of entry-level interested talent. Yeah, right. For sure. Um, yeah, it just seems like uh, they, they maybe have a, a, a many more options now than to have to go after you know someone who might kind of be maybe morally compromised. <laughs> and, right. And like... Maybe is the kind of person you don't want to trust with, you know, the the kind of access that you'd have to give them to do their job. Like, I don't right. know. Right. Or at the very least, even if they have become an upstanding person, do they still have any connections to people that would try to exploit them um, and mm -hmm. know things about them? Like, are they an easier target for things like social engineering by the people they were working with? Questions like that. Right. So aside from all of the weed articles. <laughs> the name Kevin Mitnick came up and I've definitely heard this name. What's interesting to me is that I know it mostly from, I got this expansion for Cards Against Humanity once called Hackers Against Humanity. Oh, okay. And it was clearly made by like DEF CON hackery types. And one of the white cards was kicking Kevin Mitnick out of a Chevy's. A Chevy's is apparently a chain of restaurants that I think is just like an everyday mm -hmm. restaurant. Okay. So I was looking this up and it actually had something to do with, so there's RSA Con, which is a conference about computer security. If you recognize the name RSA, you might have like an RSA token that you use for two-factor authentication to log into things. Yeah. And I guess one year RSA made a deal with some government organization to basically allow i don't know if they like gave them keys or built in a back door or enforced the use of a weaker encryption or something like that but a lot of the security community felt like rsa made a very big transgression against security in the name of cooperating with the government oh something similar is happening right now three legislators have brought up a bill that is trying to basically force any company in the u.s who offers encryption to also if subpoenaed provide law enforcement and the government with access Ooh. and decrypt all the data, which I think is bad. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, like, are they, they're basically saying they have to provide like the key or whatever, like, like, in yeah. The, to, so for, for decrypting, whatever, um, 
yeah, because I'm trying to think of the, my my limited experience with the the term RSA is in terms of like generating uh, public and private keys for like right. uh, for like GitHub. You know, that's the only reason I yeah. ever used it. But uh, so if you have that, you have access to the whole communication, right? End to end encryption becomes pointless. Uh, from a perspective of anybody who has that key. And then I also start asking questions of myself of, well, how many people in the government are going to get this key? If they're providing the key in response to a subpoena, is that a court record? Like, does this become completely compromised? Do they right. have to then roll their keys constantly? Yes. A lot of the time, the concern is not just, we don't want the government looking at whatever instant messages we send. It's also, does this just break all of the security because you're introducing potentially loads of people to the key that unlocks it all. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so naturally, the security... public information, and then like you just shot yeah. holes in the whole thing. Like, what's the point of security if it, from a certain perspective, doesn't actually exist? Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. So a lot of people in the security community were not pleased with this, and around the time of the RSA conference, they basically decided that they were going to kind of like reserve the restaurant. And in particular, this is a restaurant that I guess it was close to the conference venue and it was pretty cheap. And I think it was like fast casual type food. Mm -hmm. So prime place for, I have an hour between talks and I want to go get food. And one day they just bought the whole thing out and nobody was allowed to go in that came in with a badge that they, that indicated that they had paid to go to RSA conference. And they were given a form that was like, Hey, your support of RSA with your money or your business's money is continuing that, this use or this cooperation, we don't support it. Here's more information. I think the Electronic Frontier Foundation was involved in it pretty heavily. Yeah, it sounds uh, right. And apparently, in particular, Kevin Mitnick showed up and was really rude about it. <laughs> didn't let him in and booted him out. <laughs> yeah. That's so okay. so that was my first, the first bell that rang in my head. Um, Kevin He's Mitnick. not... Yeah, M-I-T-N-I-C-K. Okay. Apparently he's written and co-written uh, several books. Yes, so um, I read one of those. Mm. For you. Awesome. Awesome. My, my favorite of which, which I doubt it's the one that you wrote because it's not the most topical, but uh, my favorite of which was one he co-wrote about um, having fun with hacking your hard drive. And I think the <laughs> title is something about like, have fun voiding your warranty, which I just really appreciate that. Yeah. A anyway, of, what, oh, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say a lot of, a lot of the things that I've heard from the InfoSec community about Kevin Mitnick are not very nice, but I kind of reserved a little bit of judgment because I think that there's a thing that happens in this community where we all acknowledge that social engineering or the human element, I mean, we talked about it at the top of the podcast, mm -hmm. is one mm -hmm. of the most common ways to compromise something. And I think that there's a really bad habit that exists in some parts of the InfoSec community where people say, well, you're not really a hacker. Like, you just social engineered everything. I've absolutely been the end of this. Mm -hmm. I think that people that already are not liked very much tend to kind of get this. Um Okay. As as this way to like take you down a peg and be like, well, you didn't really hack anything. Like you just talked to somebody on the phone and then gave got them to give you the answers. And I'm like, yes. So I hacked a person. Like we call this human hacking <laughs> or social engineering. Thank you. Yeah, I it's, did. it's a little bit <laughs> it of uh, it's a little bit of like yeah. a purity test or gatekeeping. Like it's somehow yeah, not right. good enough, even though it still achieves its goal. Right. Right. So so I was like, I need to go to the source for this because. I think that it's only fair that I read Kevin Mitnick's memoir 
so that I can get a, a glimpse for myself. And also this came up as um, it seemed like maybe some reports were such that he got to do consulting work with the CIA afterward. Uh, this was really the only like name or specific instance I could find for this search. So I read Ghost in the Wires, mm-hmm. which I think he had a ghostwriter for. Like there's another name on it, but it's it's Kevin Minnick's memoir that he wrote or co-wrote. Okay. Okay. It starts out with a lot of what I would call the required hacker anecdotes of like, I was a nerdy child who preferred to read books inside and I liked <laughs> to pick at things and find loopholes and irritate the shit out of my parents. Right. And I was like, relatable. <laughs> sure. Yeah, of course. Right. Here, um, here's how I rewired our whole house to piss off my parents. <laughs> yeah. He got his mom's phone service shut off because he was basically, I think that this was the 70s or the 80s it was around the time when phone freaking ph freaking was still kind of a thing and he says that that's what got him started like he really wanted one of these blue boxes that people were using to get free long distance calls he wanted to get into this Mm -hmm. so he did what they all do which is primarily and i'll come back around to this this is one of the circles on our walk i'll talk more about phone freaking later Ah. but the point at which you like lose your household's phone service because you ticked off the phone company like my mom would have lit me up yeah right (laughs) like i get that it could be seen as a rite of passage but it's like that's that's pretty damn serious when you're a kid right i would have never been allowed yeah i i would have never been allowed to touch the phone again in my household that would have been the first and last hack of your life exactly uh, and I found that to be a recurring theme in his book, which is I am really amazed at his family. Like, I don't think I have any family members that would do some of the things in support of me that his did. Um, <laughs> I would have been told to never touch the phone again and hung out to dry. But yeah. maybe, maybe I think that there's a midpoint. I think his family perhaps enabled some things and my family just would let me sit in jail. <laughs> <laughs> let you think about what you did. Well, exactly. There's, there's- there are different kinds of love, and some people are more enabling, and some people are the tough love variety, and, you know, you get all I kinds was, of different results. <laughs> I was definitely straight up told that if I ever got myself in trouble as a teenager where I was put in jail, that they were going to leave me overnight so that I could think about it and not to call them. And I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, cool, love you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd call it a, a uh, special brand of tough love i guess what's excellent about this is like the most mischievous things that i was doing was like sitting on the internet past my bedtime on weekend nights because i just was really (laughs) enthused by the internet and and things on it and message boards of people not doing anything inappropriate but i'm digressing (laughs) (laughs) yeah right it's i don't know it seems particularly quaint now doesn't it (laughs) right (laughs) i will say So something that was very firm in Code Girls was kind of a sense of time and repeated grounding with the year and what else was going on. And I felt like not a lot of this was in Kevin Mitnick's book. And I really lost track of basically all of his interactions with the law and how they overlapped because there were at least two distinct times where he was arrested for something. And then he was waiting for his like supervised release to wrap up and he couldn't help himself and did other things. And he twice just moved somewhere else so that nobody could serve him with anything before his release was up. Wow. Um, 
when in particular the violation at that time would be like messing with computer terminals as a violation of his release. So he was like, if they can't serve it to me, it doesn't matter, which is technically true, but sir. (laughs) So I say this to mean I might transpose some things, but his first really big transgression was, and he says this himself, he wanted to get in good with these other people who were hacking, who were phone freakers, who we thought was really cool. And they said, okay, pal, get us a copy of the operating system source code. Um, I forget how he said to pronounce this. It's mm-hmm. R-S-T-S forward slash E. And I think that he just calls it like Restus E. Mm-hmm. And it was basically an operating system made for that time of computing where you had a computer somewhere and then you like time shared it. Oh, okay. So it could support multiple users. And importantly, it supported remote users using like a dial up code. So you would like use your modem to ring the specific phone number. Mm-hmm. Not quite like dial up internet as we had it, but I think very similar. And so they were like, okay, pal, get us into this. And they gave him, I think, like one internal phone number. And then he social engineered and got his way into getting an account set up that they could use to log in. Promptly, these friends of his downloaded all of the source code and then pointed a finger at him, called up the company and said, Kevin Minnick broke into your stuff and stole everything. (laughs) Jeez. Wow. And he continued to do stuff like that. You know, it. I think it kind of speaks to, you know, the reason that people get into stuff like this often in the first place is it's it's just it's fun. Like, of course, he would continue to do that. You know, it's exciting. It's like, uh, I don't know, uh, it's 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 like a, a, a prize almost. Right. Yeah. And that's what he says repeatedly through his book. He presents it in a kind of grading way, in my opinion, where he's like, all of these prosecutors just couldn't understand that I wasn't stealing it to sell it. I just wanted the thrill of the hunt. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) Or they were just making sure that you weren't also selling it to make money. You're right, Kevin. They're stupid. You're smart. (laughs) All the time. Yeah, They had no idea. They hadn't. They didn't figure you out at all. (laughs) Doesn't matter. (laughs) This book had a lot of similarities to Ronda Rousey's memoir, which I think is called My Fight, Your Fight, where it feels like every time the protagonist slash real life person does something right, it's because they're really smart and they worked really hard and they practice constantly. And every time something goes wrong, it's because somebody else is an idiot and did something dumb. (laughs) Oh, Mm -hmm. boy. All right. (laughs) I forget what that bias is called, but yes. (laughs) Yeah, there's a there's a name for that. That's a problem with a lot of memoirs. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I well, like memoirs. I, I really do like reading people's memoirs, but yeah, same. But you get you get that a lot in those because uh, that's kind of how we think about ourselves. We're the yeah. protagonist in our own story. And some people are more emotionally intelligent than other people and more self-aware than other people. So some people have the wherewithal to be like, oh, no, I understand. Like, sometimes bad things happen and it's no one's fault. Or sometimes I understand that, like, oh, yeah, I cause a lot of the problems in my life and a lot of the good (laughs) things in my life. And some people are like, everything that's good is because I'm awesome and everything that's bad is because the world hates me and everyone sucks. Mm -hmm. Right. So Kevin goes on to, at some point, monitor NSA phone lines to see if he could do it. So he wiretaps the NSA (laughs) and then wonders why they don't like him. I love it. Um, I love it so much. 
As far as I understand, the thing that got him arrested the first time was that, he, so he never downloaded that operating system. His friends did. And then we're like, neener, neener, neener. He did it. Yeah. Uh, I kind of secretly wonder after finishing this book, if he like did something really rude to them. <laughs> and <laughs> that was the driver for this. Maybe not. Maybe they were just also jerks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he was taking like a college certificate, like a six month certificate or something like that uh, in something related to computers. And he also had access to the computer lab. And so naturally what he did was resume this social engineering so that he himself could also download this operating system source code because he also wanted to look at it and see how it worked. Mm -hmm. uh, but he did all of the phone calls like in the computer lab with other students around and using the computers at the lab to record tapes of the data once he got a connection. Wow. And naturally somebody was like, this kid is making a lot of suspicious lying phone calls, <laughs> <laughs> misrepresenting himself to a variety of people, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, like you would, so, someone would notice that at some point. It's a bold move. <laughs> yeah. And then I think while he was on probation or some sort of supervision after that, he has his friends that he still wants to impress. I think they're different friends. Mm. Um, but he's doing his thing where he's got to show off how cool he is. And he's like, oh, what would be really neat would be to go into this business and just see if we can walk in. And so they walk in and he's like, hey, uh, I don't have my badge, but I work here. I wanted to show my buddies the office. And the security guard is like, yeah, whatever. It's like 8 p.m. Who cares? Uh, and so they naturally find a bunch of manuals and books and files about systems that they find interesting, grab a bunch of them. Uh, he gets paranoid about having all of this physical evidence of this thing that they did, especially if anybody were to get suspicious and like ask that security guard, like what happened or something. He gives all of this stuff to his friend, I think Lenny, uh, and is like, Hey, can you hold on to all of these books and stuff? And he later gets pulled over, arrested. And, uh, somehow he was still under the juvenile court's control because of that earlier thing. I think he was an adult at this time, but the operating system downloading thing was when he was a juvenile. So he was still like under control of the juvenile court, which he says is like a super lucky break. <laughs> uh, but what happened was his friend Lenny, who had all this stuff, I think was courting a young lady who was also interested in hacking. And so what do you do? You tell the girl all about the cool stuff that you've hacked oh, hell and yeah. all the things that you've gotten. You, hell yeah, you, right? You're going to not tell the girl how cool you are? Come on. <laughs> well, the girl doesn't like Kevin. And I think he talks a little bit about like maybe the reasons behind this. At some point, you start chalking it up to just maybe Kevin's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Kevin Mitnick, if you ever listen to this obscure podcast yeah. because your name's in the SEO, but you don't even write yourself as the good guy <laughs> in your own book very often. Yeah, like at some point, if uh, lots and lots of people are wanting to turn on you, it's there is there is a case mounting that maybe you haven't been super nice to everybody or something. Yeah, right. I, I'm usually pretty aware of like when I hear stories like that, where it's like, oh, yeah, and then someone used me to do this thing or someone All turned me in. All of my exes are a... crazy. Yeah. <laughs> where you're like, okay, well, is it really that or are you an asshole? And they got <laughs> sick of you being an asshole and stopped covering for you. Like, right. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's all of my exes are crazy. Totally sums it up. Oh god, yeah, <laughs> really does. Yeah, that's a that's like a big, that's the reddest flag of red flags. <laughs> yeah, I I understand that I'm the common denominator, but it's all them. <laughs> right. Anyway, so there are a few things here that I have the timeline jumbled on. Um, 
I also like read this book and then read other books and kind of went back to it. So it might be the timeline telling. It might be just me not remembering it well. But two things. Mm-hmm. One, at some point in all of this, even though it was under the juvenile court and his name should never have been published, a couple of local newspapers published like Kevin Mitnick steals information from Pacific Bell and also, or I don't know if it was from Pacific Bell, but also Pacific Bell was the phone company that had a file on him because he messed around so much that he got their phone cut off <laughs> by them. Right. Uh, so he he tries to kind of go straight and get a job at a phone company because he's like, I'm so interested in these phone systems and operating systems. At this time, a lot of computing was kind of like because it operated over the phone system. It was it was related to the phone company. He's like, I want to get a job at the phone company. This works for six days because they find out that he was arrested for stealing stuff from phone companies. Oh, so that sucks. Um, of course, it's like the L.A. Times fall for publishing his name. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's I mean, especially like as a minor, like that's a big no, no. Right. I mean, like, yeah, that is definitely a no, no, for yeah. sure. So, I don't like, want to say. Like, it, it's definitely a failure of journalistic integrity, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But also, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just it, it strikes me that uh, typically when it comes to minors, it's a, a, at least policy not to uh, not to run their names up the pole like that, usually. Right. Um, there's also some point in here where the for the first time. I think he's waiting for like four months to pass so that he's at the end of his juvenile supervised, like no touchy computer order. <laughs> and he's like, well, if they can't find me, they can't serve me with still touching computers. And so he has like an aunt and uncle who have a farm, I think, in upstate California. And they're just like, sure, Kevin, come do farm work for a summer. And I'm like, again, my family would never. <laughs> 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 oh, that's crazy. So he just manages to dodge ever being, ever really having to like, uh, uh, like be served with that or whatever. Is that the idea? That for a while he pulls it off. Like in this instance, that happens, and he just like goes up to some farm. <laughs> they never find him, and then he's like, "Hey, so under this California law, this means that this expired, and I'm done, right? Even if I touched computers at the time, like I'm no longer under your purview." And they're like, "Yep." And he's like, "Cool, I'll go back home." <laughs> They, wow. they, they harbored him essentially as a fugitive. This is like <laughs> right. this is like the act two of like some big movie where like he has to lay low or it's like the second movie in a trilogy where the guy's got to lay low a bit. But then he, he, he comes out of retirement <laughs> and he's like better than ever. And Man, it's I really want to watch firewood. Yeah. <laughs> I really want to watch that movie where the first half is like a super nerdy tech hacker guy breaking his back on a farm. <laughs> and the second half is him going back to his old ways. Yeah, right. Like, like it's called him out of retirement. Like, it's time to it's time to do this. You got to get back in there. You're the best hacker there he like, is. He like lowers himself back into a computer chair for the first time in years, and he's <laughs> like, like a gamer chair. Yeah, ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. This is the stuff. Yeah, he puts his <laughs> puts his sunglasses on and hits that power button, and it's like. Pew! <laughs> He's got to slowly pull on his fingerless gloves and then pull up his hoodie. Yeah. There's a montage. This yeah. is all part of the montage. Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm, go- I'm going into the internet. I'll be right back. 
Okay, Mitnick, get a hold of us. We're writing this movie. We got a screenplay <laughs> worked up. <laughs> I think that actually there was a movie. So I'll I'll talk at some point. There's a particular, you can still find these articles from the New York Times from like 1992. There's some guy, I think his name is like Mark Bankoff. I have it in my notes, who writes a ton of what I would agree are pretty inflammatory articles about like elusive hacker Kevin Mitnick who could take down the entire world by whistling into a telephone. <laughs> and I guess... There was a movie at some point. I don't know if it got made and if it just like was panned or what, but like there's definitely been a movie. Um, yeah, he talks about that a lot. He really hates that reporter. Uh, but <laughs> around this time, I think in like the intermediary chunk, as far as I could tell, Kevin's like, I meet this girl, Bonnie, and Bonnie is my friend and she tells me about how she's engaged to this guy but she's suspicious because he always talks about how he's very rich but he never seems to have money and he seems to like not be driving nice cars or all these things and so instead of being a normal person and encouraging her to like ask questions or or find these things out in normal oh, no. ways he like hacks his bank accounts oh, no. and it's like no bonnie this man is not rich and then says I didn't want to break up their relationship, but a few weeks after she got over it, we did start dating. No. Like, oh man. Nice guy. Kevin Mitnick. <laughs> oh no. <sighs> I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. They eventually get married and he states that this is in part because he's done something else and she can't be forced to testify against him if they're married. And also she says she was crazy about him. So he has redeeming qualities. Wait, this is his words that she says she's crazy about? It was a quoted part. So I think that mm -hmm. it was taken from some sort of interview, perhaps. Okay. Um, I don't know that the ghostwriter and the editor would have allowed it to be like written as a direct quote if it wasn't. Hopefully. If it wasn't from something. Okay, good. <laughs> And what's funny is it's it seems to be taken as kind of a retrospective where they're like, so Bonnie, tell us why you were willing to marry Kevin Minnick as he faced prison time for hacking yet again. And she's like, I was just crazy about him. I don't know. Something about him. Um, <laughs> also, in his own book. He was blackmailing me. <laughs> that's, I don't not, know that that's true. That's not fair. Not, a, not a claim. Internet journalists and lawyers. Yeah, that's not a real thing. That's that's what we call on the Goose Chase podcast a joke. Yeah, that's a very silly, uh, totally not legally uh, condemnable uh, statement. Uh, just uh, just yeah. spitballing here. Whee! Anyway, continue. <laughs> I think that Kevin still, like, 15 years later, was a little salty about what happens next. Because even in his own book, he's like, I liked Bonnie and I didn't mind her being a lazy housekeeper and leaving piles of things around her apartment. Oh, and I'm like, God. damn, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I, yeah, like, what kind of a statement is that? I liked her. I didn't mind her being a garbage person. Like, all right. Well, so I can you almost understand. Do. <laughs> I can almost understand this because what happens later is that so Kevin, you know, like deals with this stint of prison uh, in which I think this is the time where while he's in prison, he's like, I could only call people on my approved list. But sometimes I wanted to talk to Bonnie and she was at work. So I would like put my hand behind my back and hang up and immediately ring before the dial tone was audible to the guard that was sitting there staring right at me. And I'm like, again, <laughs> learn to quit sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But at some point he, I think listens to her voicemail machine because there's like cassette tape voicemails now and you can ring them to listen to your own recordings. Oh yeah. And he hears her 
somebody talking about like, oh, it's great to spend time with you. And he's like, who is this? And so he finds a phone bill when he gets back and he finds out it's his friend Lenny. And I'm like, or maybe it was Lewis. There's a Lenny and a Lewis and having L names and being very similar people makes these confusing. So I might have that wrong, but either way, um, it's his friend. It's his friend who was chatting up his wife while he's in prison. And I think that this is also one of the friends who like, got him in trouble so i'm like you i don't know if you i wonder if maybe your normal meter is broken you're picking questionable people to ally (laughs) yourselves with maybe you need to take some time on your own (laughs) yeah yeah like i mean i don't know there's sort of like a um there's something about like uh people like just kind of roguish people you know Um, and sort of like surrounding yourself with people that are you know willing to bend some rules and that's part of why you're all already friends you know i would also contend that the kind of person who seeks like the kind of endorphin rush that is like risky behavior like doing something you know is wrong or you could get in trouble for might also be the kind of person who like subconsciously seeks out dramatic situations because they're always after like some kind of a excitement or high so like maybe his choosometer for who he hangs out with is a little bit not great because there's a little bit of a drama thing happening yeah Yeah, it makes me think of the book how to murder your life by kat marnell and there's a few points where she talks about like I was a party girl. I always liked to party. I wanted to go out. I wanted to see all the best clubs. I liked to drink. And you make friends when you're dedicated to the party lifestyle who are also dedicated to the party lifestyle. And they're not really your friend. They're your friend while you're partying and while the party is good. Yeah. But I didn't have a lot of good friends at that time because we weren't really friends. We were party companions. And it it kind of feels like that. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think... um... You know, the kind of things that draw you together very much shape how strong your friendships actually are. And if, you know, if if the purpose of the friendship isn't really about being friends and it's something else, then there's that other thing is usually the, you know, the thing. Yeah, if it's, if it's a mutual goal, whether it be like partying or like, it, you know, the hobby that you enjoy that is like acquiring sensitive information by hacking or whatever... Like once that goal is accomplished, or you are not useful anymore, and then that's like not a true friendship. But if that's the thing you like to do, you probably run into a lot of other people like that. Mm. Well, thinking of picking friends, I think um, maybe through his friend Lewis, I think Lenny is the one who both had the girlfriend that got them in trouble and then also wound up dating his wife and then lewis is like the new l name friend around this time but i think through him he winds up meeting this other like master hacker who of course they want to like talk about hacking stuff with and he figures out that this guy seems really suspicious and he's pretty sure it's an fbi informant so what he does is not stop talking to this person it's impersonate law enforcement to places like the social security administration and the dmv to find this person's real information and do things like call him from his apartment complexes like plaza phone and be like hey bro let's hang out and then him being like how did you find where i live what the hell (laughs) okay that's uh choices that's kind of intense i mean i don't know i think impersonating uh a federal agent right which what is what this would amount to a big part of it was, I guess there was an internal phone line that he found that 
police officers would use to call a DMV if they needed a lookup. And so by matter of having that internal only phone number, like this is a huge component of phone freaking too, is if you dial an internal number that's only supposed to come from a certain place and you say, yeah, I'm from that certain place. I need to look up on blah, blah, blah. And you know the language. Yeah. That's peak social engineering. Sure. Like it's it's clever. Yeah. Um, it's a trusted line. No, no one should be getting in there that shouldn't be. So. Well, right. That right. sounded weird. But yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Hmm. I think that even if he hadn't claimed a rank, this this does put you firmly into impersonating law enforcement, though. And I think at some point he says he's a lieutenant because he's like, nobody wants to let down the important person in the organization. And I'm like, again, a good tenant of social engineering, but mm -hmm. a choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that makes sense, though. You know, when you get the when you get a call from someone important enough, <laughs> you kind of freak out a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, fear is a huge driver in getting people to do things like click on phishing links and provide information. It, it totally makes sense. I think that he is a very accomplished social engineer at this point. Yeah. I don't know that I could make the jump to impersonating the police to the DMV, especially not to find out information on the FBI informant that I think is trying to <laughs> collect evidence on me. <laughs> I think I just stopped talking to that person, but I don't know. Uh, right. This is just me roasting Kevin Mitnick's memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. At some point, he he becomes concerned. He's living with his dad at this point, and he's concerned that they've wiretapped his dad's line, which, of course, he's been using to do all sorts of bad things again and a lot of the social engineering. First of all, again, my parents would hang me out to dry completely if I was using their phone <laughs> to make these calls, but whatever. Um, he decides what he should do is social engineer the phone company by, again, calling an internal line and saying, like, oh, this is from the test board. I need you to check on a line for me. It went dead. And then the person is like, oh, I got three tap lines on. Like, which one do you want? He's like, I don't know. Tell me which each of them are, and I'll tell you which one I need you to look at. So he gets the numbers of the lines that are being tapped by his, like, regional phone company's location. Huh. He at some point thinks that an investigative, like, PI team has been tapped instead of him. And I think that he wrangles a job out of this. I, I think that maybe there was like an affiliation with his dad, like his dad knew somebody that was at it. Um, this is kind of fuzzy to me, but he does wind up getting a job at a PI firm, which is kind <laughs> of almost the brief. Unfortunately, he gets really mad later because he's like, oh, I think the FBI is on to me. I'm going to dump all my information. I think at one point they came to his apartment and he had cleared his apartment because he was getting worried about it. And then he went to his office to go wipe all of his drives that he had been doing stuff on at the office and the pi owner is like kevin what are you doing and he's like oh i'm just wiping these terminals and the guy's like don't do that and he's like <laughs> oh they were trying to sleaze their way out of their bad behavior by trying to retain information on me and turn me over Ooh. again people that you're around don't seem good yeah wow Oh my goodness. Once again, so he cleared out his apartment again by bringing stuff to a friend, which again, I don't know. Like, I feel like if I showed up on your door and I said, hey, can you hold this box full of stuff for me in like your spare room? I would not be surprised if you two were like, that's pretty weird. Um, why? <laughs> yeah, what's and in Lewis, that box? <laughs> Lewis is like, yeah, you can put your stuff here. <laughs> and naturally, the FBI go like straight to Lewis and are like, we know that you talk cool. to this person all the time. What's up? And he says, listen, I'm really scared of Kevin. I'll give you everything I have. He left this stuff with me. Just don't get me in trouble. And Kevin's like, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Boo hiss. 
<laughs> There's a part where his grandmother, his loving grandmother, so his mom and his grandma are really supportive of him. Uh, his grandma takes him to like a Kinko's or some other coffee shop because he needs to pick up something. I forget exactly what. I think this might have been the time when he was like requesting DMV records to get a fake identity, basically, because at some point he starts preparing to really go on the run. Similar to that first time where he just went somewhere for four months, but I think this one's like more permanent. And he's like, oh, crap, I gotta go. I gotta get out of California. Uh, and so she takes him to this Kinko's. He gets suspicious because a lot of people seem to be just kind of standing around and it's very busy and it's taking a long time. So he like walks up behind the counter, takes the papers that he wanted, is like, oh, these scans aren't very good. Everybody's, you know, a fed waiting for him to try to walk out with them because then that's proof that he was grabbing these DMV files that he wasn't supposed to have. And he runs away from them, makes it. But then his grandma is like, hanging out at the Kinko's, just waiting. <laughs> and granted, like, to his credit, he's like, oh, no, my grandma. And he, like, tried to call a nearby supermarket, I think, and be like, hi, is there an old lady in this car? Like, I think I lost my grandma. You know, ha, touch of Alzheimer's. Can you check on her? And they, like, couldn't find her. And he tries. It's not like he abandons her. But I'm like, your family is so incredibly supportive. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like I have one of those families that probably would do all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yours yours probably might. But also, that's predicated on the fact that I, like, never really got into trouble. So they would, like, trust me that, like, whatever I was doing, I probably wasn't doing something wrong. <laughs> right. If I had yeah. a history of being mischievous and getting into trouble, that would change their reactions. Yeah, I was talking through this with my boyfriend, and I was like, I would, like, my family would never. And he's like, well, but... <laughs> I mean, what was he doing at this time? Was this something like your family member coming up and saying, I murdered someone, please hide me? Or was he just downloading the source code? And I was like, well, he was only really downloading source code and like social engineering, but also he had been doing it for years. And I feel like my family's breaking point would not be years of playing cat and mouse with the FBI. True, <laughs> be but like, also Stop I... potentially getting us in trouble. I don't want to be involved in this. I also right. think it's important to keep in mind the context of when this happened and the general public's familiarity with this kind of activity and like the internet and like the things you can do on it and hacking in general like they might not have really fully understood the gravity of the things he was doing and so they're like ah oh, you're just playing with phones uh, i yeah. don't know why it's so much of a big deal <laughs> yeah a good sure. point. come to my farm and, there, and hide <laughs> there is kind of a dichotomy throughout the book and at the time where to many people, it's like, oh, Kevin just likes playing on his terminal. And then something that comes up a lot that I agree with that is inappropriate on behalf of the government is there is one hearing where somebody is like, this guy could whistle into a phone and launch nuclear warheads. He's a danger to society. And it's like, that's not how that works. Um, yeah, right. No, he couldn't. And this is this will come into play a little bit later. So there, there's definitely that going on where some people are very in the camp, like this isn't that bad. And some people are like, you're a menace and you could destroy the entire planet with hacking. <laughs> uh, so the, the New York Times reporter, yeah, I have him down as Mark Kobal, K-O-B-A-L-L. And I will say that in reading these articles, they're pretty sensational. And I think this contributes to the idea of like, he's a very dangerous hacker. He could do all sorts of terrible things. And he's like, I was just downloading source code because I wanted to know how this operating system worked. Uh, what the hell? Um, 
I think at some point, so I read this in a different source, not the memoir, because as far as I recall, this was conveniently left out of this memoir. But at some point, Kevin gets access to this guy's email server and sets it to like all read available. So anybody could read this guy's emails oh going in and out. Oh, geez. Great choice. Antagonize this guy who's already convinced or <laughs> even if he doesn't believe it, telling everybody else that you're a menace. Uh, yeah. Choices. Yeah. That doesn't help the situation at all. Yeah. He also at this point is getting really interested in cell phones because cell phones are coming out, right? Like Motorola's got mm -hmm. tiny handheld cell phones. And I think it's related to this that he ticks off a group and a person. The group or the site is called The Well, which is kind of like an early bulletin board or analog to Reddit where like you would have wells and you could have a well for like gardening and that would get a server. People oh. would kind of donate because at this time server space is really expensive, but it's, it's basically like a bulletin board where you can log in, leave a short message and say, I like growing peppers. What's your favorite pepper? And somebody else could do the same thing. So they have lots of servers. They're very expensive. He used them as like an intermediary, I think using a hijacked account, but I'm not sure to like offload data because he couldn't offload it straight to himself. And so the people at the well are like, all of the space is being eaten up and it's very expensive. Whose is this? And nobody knows who it is. The person is Sutomu Shimamura, who is a computer security person. Okay. And after enough interactions with Kevin, set something up so that on his... Uh, workstations, which you have to remember at this time are literally like a workstation, probably on a college campus that he would also remote into to run programs. Yeah. And he's like, I'm going to set something up to look for really long sessions, which if you're transferring data out, takes a very long time mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. catches Kevin in all of his stuff. And he's like, this is not great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so now Kevin has ticked off a New York Times reporter, a computer security expert, a lot of internet people, <laughs> early internet people. Yeah, like not a lot of goodwill going around here. <laughs> he, I think at this time, he's pretty much fully on the lam. So for a while, he goes to Denver, where he is, I think, completely like under the radar. Um, a lot of the pictures going around of him were pretty old from a time that he was in prison. He had like a stubbly beard grown out because he hadn't shaved in a while. And he had lost like 100 pounds, I think. And he put rocks oh, in his wow. shoe so that his gait couldn't be analyzed. Um, wow. And he's like, damn, the one thing I haven't done yet is figure out how I can call people and talk to my friends and my mom and my grandma without getting traced because I can't just get a phone line in my name, right? And in particular, he's Jackson's like, if I get a cell phone. not quite a thing yet. <laughs> right. Well, he does figure out that maybe he could get a couple of cell phones and figure out how to clone phone numbers so that he could change his number over and over again. And it wouldn't be like one long strip of communication from him coming from this phone because it would be a bunch of different accounts. So he social engineers Motorola into, I think, sending him a couple of like prototype phones and also getting him firmware that allows this to happen. It was like oh, wow. testing firmware, I think. So like this wasn't a thing you could do on the normal phone because that's bad. They write it so that you can't do that. Um, and so this is very impressive. Like his retelling of this is very cool to me. He does a lot of really innovative social engineering tricks. Mm -hmm. Um, but then later, I think he had left Denver and gone to Raleigh, North Carolina, and 
he's there for like a week and he had been using identities that he took from the DMV of people who are like about his age, about his demographic, believably him. And he's like, damn, I moved to Raleigh and I don't want to pay a $400 deposit, $400 deposit on my utilities. I'll see if I can get a reference from this real person whose identity I'm using from his utility company. Say that I bought a house here and then I won't have to pay a deposit. <laughs> this doesn't go well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> at some point he has a cousin. I mean I appreciate the creativity in yeah. trying to get around things like he's very clever he's obviously intelligent but it's also like oh just pay the $400 <laughs> it's just like yeah. so much work to Don't avoid to prison for $400 you'll get the deposit back <laughs> <laughs> yeah I don't know. I yeah, also so appreciate I think... the. I also appreciate the creativity, and I and I. Uh, I don't know. There's, there's a there's a certain kind of thing about like, you know, who cares if it's about it's it is it isn't about four hundred bucks. It's about it's about winning, right? Man, just, man. <laughs> yeah, it's just just like co- conquering the world, not having to pay a red cent if you don't have to. Whatever. It's you know. It's yeah, a challenge. I, and. There are a ton of really cool like hacker exploits all throughout this book. I I do want to give him credit where credit's due. He was very innovative. Um, I do think that he was a very good social engineer. I think that it's unfair for people to specifically pick at like, he wasn't really a hacker. He just social engineered because he he social engineered a lot. He social engineered like the FBI and the DMV and stuff like that. Yeah, like it's sort of uh, again, it doesn't matter if the if the if the if the if it goes if if you succeed, you succeeded. Does it really matter what your methods are? Right. And so finally, in February of 1995, he's arrested for like the big time. And this is where I wanted to come back to things that I definitely agree with him on that were kind of like overreaches of the government and companies that were involved here. Uh, So one major thing is that when they first come into his apartment, he's like, show me your warrant. Like, he's still saying like, oh, I'm Eric Weiss. I'm not this person. Like, do you have a warrant to be at my apartment? And they don't show him one. And they start digging through his stuff looking for like Kevin Mitnick identifiers. Right. Eventually they come back and the warrant is typed, but the address is written in. And he later finds out that they figured out where exactly he was. Like they had pinpointed him with phone stuff and Shimamura's help to an area. And they were pretty sure he was in this building, but he was like, Hmm, a suspicious amount of vans are outside. I'm going to look out my door. Oh, yep. Lots of vans. And they were like, aha, that one. (laughs) oh so they they see him peek out and then they write in the address that's what seems to have happened oh that's not which is not (laughs) you can't do that (laughs) right um right yeah that's that's not how that works (laughs) right uh peeking is not a crime some of (laughs) us are naturally paranoid right (laughs) and clearly even if he was paranoid they were out to get him um, another thing that he talks about is Shimamura kind of got a setup where he was working for a phone company. And even though the intended effect was that he would monitor communications and intercept them to give it to the FBI and the pursuit of Kevin Minnick, it was set up and the government kind of agreed, like, it's fine. It's a phone company monitoring their own phones. Like, this is permissible. It's not wiretapping. And he's like, but it was the government asking for this. And they should have then had a warrant or something like, yes, it was Shimamura voluntarily handing over information, which isn't subject to the same requirements of like a government search. But he points out that this is very fishy. And I agree. It seems fishy. 
Yeah. No, I think you're right. I don't. Uh, I <laughs> I I think that uh, just kind of barely skirting the rules there. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem cool to me either. And then he's held for I think about four and a half years pre-trial on oh this God. group of charges, which is horrifying. That's um, that's I think, a long time. Jesus. Yeah. I think he spends a combined about eight months in solitary confinement. And this comes back to that thing I mentioned where everybody said, well, he could launch nuclear missiles by whistling into a phone. So he's dangerous. And mostly people say like he was being strong armed into giving up how he did a lot of things. This you could disprove if he was really able to do the things that you're claiming, whether or not he could do like, yeah, Yeah. it's sketchy. This leads to the Free Kevin movement. In particular, 2600 Magazine distributes these yellow bumper stickers that just say Free Kevin. And he said that from his jail cell, he saw a plane go by with a banner that they had, like, fly by that said Free Kevin. There's oh. a huge movement about this wow. from, the, from the, the point of view of, like, the government is clearly overreaching and is trying to make a very big point out of this person. Uh, they're making him an example. Yeah. Right. And... Overall, the only thing that I could pull from this was that I think what some people call consulting with the CIA is he describes it as like everybody that like I would get pulled out and they would talk to me and they'd be like, well, maybe you could debrief the CIA on all of these bad things you were doing. And that would be really nice of you. (laughs) And then I think that he finally agrees after like a deal is set up. And he talks to them and he tells them like, oh, I social engineered the DMV. And they're like, we're done here. Get him out. This is stupid. And he's like, yeah, I, I, I wasn't launching nuclear missiles. <laughs> That's my whole point. Wow. Yeah. So like when they when they finally sit him down, what he's, you know, it's just like they've created this big, this big monster out of you yeah. know, this guy that uh, just doesn't. Well, I, I think it was probably easier to. It's pretty easier to convince people to be scared of stuff like that back then, right? Yeah, for sure. And especially, I mean, War Games, the movie came out at some point around this. Uh-huh. And so they were like, Kevin Mitnick could launch the nuclear codes by <laughs> doing this thing that Matthew Broderick as a baby did in this movie. You know? Yeah. Well, we all know that the government never, ever does anything for different reasons than what they tell the public. Like, they wouldn't tell the public and feed into panic about nuclear warfare to actually convince someone to do their bidding for them. They would never do that. No, they would never do that. No. Not possible. That's not not my government. And then I salute the flag. Um (laughs) Which flag? So, I don't know. Any flag. <laughs> I I read a book just about phone freaking. Um, if we have time to go over that, I don't have as much on that as I do Kevin's book. Yeah, we do need a short break if we want to get into that before That's, I can keep talking more. We got we got time. This is, we got none but okay. time. <laughs> all right, let's take yeah. a little break. Let's take can, a couple can little, little break. break? Oh, all right. A little break, break. Let's take a burk burk. We are, we are right now at, uh, I think this episode is over two hours now, but not by much. So that's all right. <laughs> if you're okay with it, I'm okay with it. Yeah. I'll I'm okay with it. I actually really do want to hear more about phone freaking. Cause I've heard about it in the, you know, it was like such a big, like uh 
thing, and I don't really necessarily know it, how it was used as much as like how it, it works. It's something I don't know much about, but I am intrigued too. So I'm here it's for cool it. It's cool as hell, so. and I have a good book recommendation. So if you like my blurb of it, you can also read it for yourself. Sick. Nice. All right, let's let's take that little break break then. All right, be right back. are back we never have a fourth segment and or, we're back or, no this is our third yeah that's it it's never, the, yeah. i just brought back the middle saggy for you <laughs> a little middle saggy oh a little middle saggy we haven't done that in so long yeah because so, it was generally bad and didn't go anywhere <laughs> well like remember all the way back in the very very beginning and it was like one of them was like a book about animals or something like we had we had ideas <laughs> that just didn't pan out it just turned into like us eating things yeah i was going to say at some point you guys tasted potato chips and i wanted to break my own eardrums <laughs> yeah it's mostly us eating and we're like this isn't good yeah. and we don't have enough to go here so why are we doing it i don't know it just felt like uh formula more than anything Right. It, well, it's one of those things that takes you a while to realize, like, something isn't working, and wh why are you really holding on to it? Mm -hmm. Anyway, right. that's that's been podcast <laughs> talk. <laughs> I do have a, an, a capstone to middle seggy regarding Kevin Mitnick, which is, I joked that I was just roasting him and his book, um, but by comparison, I pulled a, a potent quotable from a Goodreads review of Ghost in the Wires that uh, I would like to read to redeem myself because I don't think I'm that bad. Okay. It reads, all of these good aspects put the worst part of the book in sharp relief. Mitnick is a sociopath. I'd sooner read the sympathetic diaries of John Wayne Gacy than revisit Mr. Mitnick. On top of which, he spends most of the book trying to convince you, the innocent reader, that he is the put-upon party, that he is the victim of the friends and the law and the system. There's even a chapter entitled, I'm a Scapegoat. Wow. <laughs> okay. I, I kind of like, as harsh as that sounds, I that sounds fair to me. Like, from the stuff <laughs> that you've told us, I feel like that's probably true. I still think it's a book that's probably worth a read if you keep that in mind. If you're like, yeah. obviously this person is trying to socially engineer me as I read this, because of course he is. Yeah, but if you can handle that and you can handle passages where he's like, the FBI knocked on my door and I answered it in such a tizzy I forgot to put clothes on. The female agent who had knocked couldn't help but look down. Oh, it's a, it's a good read. Wait a yeah. minute. You mean like he specifically builds in a passage where an FBI agent checks out his junk? Yeah. Well, like, my dick's so big. <laughs> so many words. Uh, big nerd energy. Yeah. Yeah. No uh, thanks. No thanks, Kevin Mitnick. Keep it in your pants. Kevin Mitnick, do better. I didn't even have that written just down do in my better. notes. I just still remember it because it's seared into my brain. <laughs> It would. Yeah, I don't like it. I just, uh, <laughs> just looking at his face, I don't. Kevin, I, I hate Kevin, this. honey, darling, Kevin, Sweetie, you did that on purpose, Kevin. Kevin, you no, know, don't you do that? Kevin, don't, don't darling. do that, Kevin, <laughs> honey. Gross. 
Stop making people uncomfortable on purpose, Kevin. That's Kevin. not nice. It's unbecoming. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So. so, third segment is pretty much me telling you about the book Exploding the Phone by Phil Lapsley. And the full title of this book is, let me scroll up in my list, Exploding the Phone, the Untold Story of the Teenagers and Outlaws Who Hacked Ma Bell. Um, I had a little bit of a hard time finding a copy of this book. I think maybe it's not in ongoing production. I did just kind of go to like Abe Books or Bookshop or whatever, one of those sites that has a variety of bookshops around the country that can list things that they have. And I got a copy from a store that had a paperback copy that was in very good condition. Nice. So I found nice. it that way. So I recommend that. And I do highly recommend this book. I think that this is by far the book that does the best job of balancing a coherent timeline with interesting characters with building up the tech speak so that like in the middle of the book, you'll even a reviewer said like, I read the sentence and she puts in the sentence and she's like, this should have been incomprehensible, but the author does a very good job of explaining things step by step by step. So that by the mid to late book, you can read a technical jargony aspect of how phones routed long distance calls and understand it. So wow. it's, I think like from an author perspective, this is the best one of the three uh, that I read for this episode. <clears throat> so wow. 10, 10 recommend. The only thing that I nice. think would be missing is if there had been like one specific interesting person who I think the author also struggled because a lot of people still didn't want to use their names. Mm. Um, but like if one prolific person had said, yeah, you can use my name and would have been able to have them be the person that it's woven around, that would have been great. But I think that nobody wanted to do that like i don't think it was the author's fault yeah, yeah the, it was the best book they could write using the information they had and were able to use yeah and the author talks about how he filed like 400 freedom of information act requests i think and parsed through everything and interviewed a lot of people wow that is a yeah. lot of legwork yeah it is and a lot of boring legwork it, yeah. it's important to know a lot like, of paper pushing reading through government documents is not fun. If you want the shorter version, uh, instead of getting the book, this person also runs historyofphonefreaking.org. You're going to spell freaking P-H-R-E-A-K-I-N-G, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of like a summary version. And then at the end of the FAQs, he's like, I love this. Where can I read more? He's like, I wrote a book. It's called Exploding the Phone. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to, that's a good way to promote like your book. That. Yeah. Um, so that, that will give you the short version that's probably going to be technically more accurate than the short version that I'm about to give you. If you want to read more about the stuff and how it works. Okay. So the, right. <laughs> the book starts out by talking about um, the phone system and, and how it was invented from the very beginning, how it was implemented in the United States, and then goes into talking about phone freaks who abused it, mostly in like the 50s to 60s. Um, until the system was fully replaced because that was what had to be done to stop what was happening. Uh, <clears throat> in a not-so-shocking parallel to Midnick's book, this book also opens with somebody who, this guy, like, meets somebody else who's talking about phone freaking because some other kids had done it, and he's, like, trying to get in touch with these people who pulled this off. There were a group of, I think, Harvard and MIT students who basically researched how the phone system worked, how to get free calls, how to call internal numbers of the phone system, things like that. 
And so naturally what he does is calls the journalists that wrote an article on these people and says, yeah, this is so-and-so from the FBI. We're seeing similar behavior to this, which you wrote about a few years ago. Do you have contact information for those original people so that we can follow up with them? (laughs) Wow. I feel like there's just a lot of people in the world that are a lot more comfortable impersonating law enforcement agents than I would ever be. I I admit that I once accidentally impersonated a law enforcement agent, but it was not my fault. It was a police. It was uh, a police op- <laughs> It was a police officer's fault. Okay. <laughs> I went on a ride along, and for some reason, the the detective I rode along with, it, he took me to a store that had been robbed, and he was like interviewing the the people who worked there, who were there when it happened. And to explain my presence, I was like a a 19 year old in college (laughs) at the time to explain my presence. He told them that I was like an FBI agent who was like overseeing him, which also makes no sense and put me in the position of like pretending I'm an FBI agent, even though I wasn't. Really? I feel like he was just razzing you. (laughs) He was razzing me and trying to see if the people went with it, which they were like, they were victims of a robbery and more concerned with like being freaked out of being the victims of a robbery. So they didn't even notice. And I'm like, you're a fucking weirdo. And why are you doing this? (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, that's how someone else impersonate made me impersonate someone. Yeah, that's that. Don't arrest me. <laughs> anyway. anyway. Yeah, people seem more comfortable doing that than they should. Mm-hmm. So have either of you seen the movie The Core? No. No. I only really ever saw it once, and I had to go back and look up this clip because it was the only part of the movie that I remembered. There's this hacker character that, of course, is like the typical really skinny dude. Mm -hmm. They open up by showing him in his apartment with somebody like banging down the door, and he's like running magnets down his computer towers to wipe everything. (laughs) And they sit him down, and it's exactly the trope that I was talking about where they're like, listen, we need you to control the flow of information on the internet. And he's like, nobody can do that. And they're like, could you do it with unlimited government resources? And he's like, well, maybe. And all this time he's like, Hey agent, can I have your phone? And somebody hands him a cell phone and he chews a piece of gum, takes the wrapper, whistles into the phone and is like, you have free long distance on that. Like forever. And hands it back to the agent. (laughs) And this is diver of phone freaking. (laughs) Right. And this is kind of like, it's not exactly how it works, but that is indicative like of the main recurring trick here uh, of getting free long distance calling. And it's in particular creating a whistle that is exactly 2,600 Hertz. This is very high pitched. If you Google it to listen to it, be careful. Maybe do it on a speaker, not your headphones. (laughs) Um, And this is because, so first of all, I assume you remember things like night and weekend minutes and long distance calling being very expensive, right? Uh-huh. Yep. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. So, God, what a terribly confusing time to own and operate oh, a phone. Right. I, I know I've read stories of like people talking about like not being able to keep up with friends who moved away. Not because it's hard anyways, but because specifically like they were only allowed to talk to them like once a month for 10 minutes at a time because long distance was so expensive. It was really expensive. And so the book explains that a huge part of the reason why this was so expensive is 
For a long time, there was one phone company, and the book subtitle calls that Ma Bell. It's Bell Systems, I think. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they get the initial, um, not copyright, what's the word? Patent, patent for yeah. mm-hmm. like phone lines. And initially, when phone lines were set up, like I as a person would have to say, I have my work office in town. I would like to have a phone line put in between my home and my office. And that was one thing. It was like a tin can with a string between it. You had to set up the one line from point to point. Yeah. So then they were like, well, this isn't really sustainable. Okay, what else can we do? We wind up in the age of operators where they're like, well, there can be a town operator. And then you call the operator board and you say, connect me to Dave. And they're like, one moment, connecting. And they would plug it in and they would send me to you. So then they're running a line from my house to the midpoint where the operators are. And then aligned to your house from the midpoint. Mm-hmm. So instead of having sets all the time, they would have one central system. So this is local calling. And the reason that you would pay per month is you would basically be paying to get hooked up to this operator system. Right. So you, it, long distance was really expensive and was separate from this. Because as they notice the patent is running out, they're like, oh, what do we do? We want to keep making lots of money. I know what we can do. And they have figured out how to set up long distance. They call them trunks. And so they create AT&T. And AT&T is this phone company that just sets up as many long distance trunks as possible with the idea that if they get all of this set up, if other independent phone companies start up doing local calling once their patent expires, because they can do that after that, they will need to pay AT&T to use their long distance lines if they want to offer services that connect people from multiple locations to each other. Gotcha. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's an attempt to like have something proprietary as this other thing is expiring. They still need some kind yeah. of thing no one else can do. It's a right. long game. Right. It, it's like looking forward to securing their future in this industry. Wow. By means of a huge monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Um, Overall long distance calling. And so you would pay for your local service and that would usually be by the month. And you just, you're paying for the connection to the operators, no matter how much you use it, because all of that infrastructure was just put in either by AT&T or by some regional entity. But in order to route long distance calls, you needed to like call an operator who knew how to get you to that place. And there might not be a line from Youngstown to Pittsburgh and they might have to go through Cleveland. And so then the operator would ring forward to Cleveland and say, oh, I need a connection to Pittsburgh. So Cleveland would say, right, connecting all of this. Wow. It's very expensive. And at some point, AT&T notices we're going to have to hire literally a million people (laughs) to do this. (laughs) if We're going to keep doing it this way. Yeah. And they set up automatic switching. And so the 2600 Hertz is the sound that says, I am an open line sitting, waiting to be connected. So the way this all works is you would call some sort of number. Um, I think one way to set it up was like, you could call an operator and say, oh, my friend said that he left a message with the operator. Um, And you would call back. And this was set up so that you could save money on like trying to call somebody who wasn't home. So if they weren't home, you could instead pay like 10 cents to leave a callback. And then that person would call back and get their message. Mm. And then you would make up something and you would be like, oh, my friend Bob told me he left a message. The operator would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't have a message. And you'd say, oh, I'll talk to Bob about it. It's fine. Okay. You would wait for her to hang up your line because she needs to go answer another call. Now you have an open line and you make the noise that's like, Uh... hey, I'm here. Um, I might be confusing a couple of things because it is a lot of technical jargon. Like there was one setup of this where you needed to make a warbling sound that was like a ring ahead sound that would normally be one operator calling another operator. 
Um, but then there was also another setup where you basically say, I'm empty, and then the system registers that you're an empty line, and you make... So the book doesn't fully explain this part, but if you think about having your old touchtone phone, like your phone line at home, mm-hmm. do you remember how if you dial the numbers, it makes like the noises, but the noises aren't like a clear... Do, 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 do. They sounded kind of like warbly. Yeah, they definitely have mm-hmm. like a. Um, uh, uh, There's like a timbre to them. Yeah, like a pattern. Like it's almost like it's like two frequencies slightly over each other. So they like interact in a sort of way. Like a multi frequency tone made up of two different tones. <laughs> on top of each other, Dave. You're so just, good at this. Just like that, you say. <laughs> so the purpose of something that they called a blue box was that you would have a box that just had the ability to make these multi-frequency tones that are the sounds of dialing. And so you would make your 2600 hertz, mm-hmm. and then you would say, do, 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 beep, boop, up. And because you didn't connect to anything that required money, you talked to the operator, which at the time was free. Yeah. It was the setup where that was totally free and then everything else cost money as opposed to now, or if you want to like call 411 or whatever, I think it costs money. Right. And now you've been connected because you told the automatic switching system that they put in for some of the equipment that you were just a line that was just being dialed, like whatever. There's no source point for it. And the billing would function by you at the source would hang up your phone. It would register that you had hung up. It would look at what you had called and then it would bill you for it. Okay. But when you hang up the phone, you call the operator, which is free. Okay. Wait. Uh, okay. I think I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also talk of like black boxes, which they call mute boxes. And that had something to do with like interrupting the signal between you hanging up and the billing kicking in. I think mm. the book explained this really well. Um, but I've, I think that there are a lot of parallels to Kevin's book because basically the way that people figure this out involved a lot of social engineering. And I kind of mentioned this the way that he did. Mm-hmm mostly people realized there are these things called internal lines. And so only people at the phone company have these and they're going to like operators. Yeah. And so if you find an internal line and you figure out, well, only people at the phone company have this, you say, oh, this is a uh, test guard three. I need to put a, a test line. Can you connect me to this number? And then you give them your friend's number. And then they're like, oh yeah, test phone call from somebody at the company. That doesn't cost money. Oh, Okay. Wow. So uh, people found multiple ways to sort of game the Tons systems. of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could do things like they would call in. Um, I think Los Angeles and San Jose both had a busy signal that like if you were getting a busy signal, the way that it worked on the back end was that they kind of just connected you to the busy signal line. It oh. would show that you couldn't connect to your friend. And so they would connect you to the busy signal line. I don't think this was people. I think this was automated at the time. But yeah. everybody got the same busy signal line. And so if you were okay with it and talking over the busy signal line, you could call something that was known to be busy, get a busy signal, which doesn't count as a connected call, have your friend also call a busy line (laughs) and talk over the busy signal. Okay. So as long as you don't mind the er, 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 you can just talk for free. (laughs) Right. Wow. People also found lines that were set up to be the like, the number you have dialed is not in service. Please try again. (laughs) And you could talk in between those, like in between the rolling announcement. And you just Um, had to figure out the number? Is that the idea? Yeah. Okay. And you got to think, sometimes this was pre-digit, pre-10-digit phone numbers. Yeah. Or um, like the way that Kevin 
tapped the NSA basically was that I think he figured out the NSA had been assigned like an entire swath of codes. So everything starting with like 535 in this town was the NSA or something like that. Oh, okay. So like that prefix is their whole range for whatever they want to do with it. And once you know that, you can start dialing numbers and figuring out what things are. Right. And this is actually called war dialing. And it used to be a service that a company I worked for still offered. Um, also, war driving is normally driving around and just looking at like public Wi-Fi signal names or things like that. Or like seeing what kind of signals you can pick up. Like is somebody's Chromecast just shouting out into public and then you can hijack it. Right. And at many points, there are stories of people saying like the biggest thing that I figured out was I could dial the rotary phone with a pencil so that my finger didn't get a permanent black mark around it and get sore because they were <laughs> dialing like 10,000 phone numbers. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's like just kind of like a brute force way of like figuring out what's going on out there, right? Like, mm-hmm. like mapping it's it out. A, it's a problem you don't think about anyone ever having <laughs> until you have to dial 10,000 phone numbers on a rotary phone. <laughs> right. Yeah, something really interesting too is... Even in the book, they talk about people noticing this, like a lot of blind people would wind up getting into phone freaking. And the kind of accepted explanation was basically everybody's kind of blind on a telephone line, right? Like you can hear it, you can touch the numbers, you can ring the dial. And so this was a particularly interesting hobby to a lot of mischievous blind people at the time. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, you're right. Everyone's Uh, blind on the phone. This is like you don't need to see to to get to get uh, in on this. Right. And in particular, some of the people hypothesized, like, maybe I was really good at figuring out these sounds because I hear everything. Like, I, I can't rely on my sight to help me. So I could tell that this sounded yeah. different than this or like this yeah. click meant this thing. It does seem like something that uh, like a person who's been blind for quite some time would be like inherently better at because they're more attuned to listening to things like maybe a little more closely or, you know. Heightened senses because one is dulled kind of thing. Yeah. Makes sense to me. So for the technology kind of background, I would definitely recommend reading the book. But I found it very interesting that there are also a lot of stories in this book of things that I feel like are very related to like Shimomura working for the phone company, but handing things straight to the FBI. Mm -hmm. It seems like for a very long time, AT&T would basically contact the fbi stating we believe we found wire fraud violating this specific statute because it's in this specific state we looked this up for you also we have evidence get in touch and really what's happening is the phone company is mad because they're losing a ton of long distance money um (laughs) and they seem to have kind of convinced the fbi to interpret wire fraud laws in a very specific way and of course for the fbi like this is a really easy case i don't begrudge them yeah, right. taking help where they can get it because the phone company has already done all the work. But a lot of the people involved are like, this was garbage. Yeah, <laughs> this was right. a private company enlisting federal law enforcement to recoup funds that we didn't pay them for long distance. Yeah, uh, uh, right. If you if you t- choose to interpret that a certain way, you can criminalize what is essentially really just a nuisance. Um you know, like it, it doesn't seem, it it doesn't seem fair that they were able to, uh, <laughs> you know, so, uh, so so completely like like with all that information at their disposal, go after people like that. Um, yeah, I mean, 
Um, oh, Leroy's making noises at me. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. The it, book also passed their dinner time. That's why so... both dogs no, are being restless. He just like cooed or something. It was like. <laughs> oh yeah, he sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm gonna let him out of this room because uh, okay. I think that's part of it. But anyway, please go on. Uh, in addition, AT and T set up like internal monitoring of its own lines. And on one hand, again, this is like Shimamura, like, oh, it's the phone company monitoring the phone. Like, this is kind of okay. But the book talks about how it just so happens that somebody on their, uh, I think, like legal team or or compliance team or something like that gets a seat at the table for like updating wire fraud statutes in the u.s and makes sure that it stays legal for this to happen for the phone company to do their own wiretapping on their own things and then also continue to hand this to law enforcement when when they want to it's a little fishy yeah it is a little fishy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then there is a subsection of the book that talks about how at the time AT&T was also very widely known to hire pretty much white men. And in the early 70s, there became an aspect to phone freaking and stealing long distance that was like, remove the funding from AT&T. Um, there's a zine that comes out. Uh, and so, again, the book does a better job of explaining this than I do. But have you ever heard of the Yippies? With yeah. a Y, not hippies. Yeah, yeah, yes, definitely. I'm trying so that's to remember who they international are, party. Wait, the, so, say it again. It's the Youth International Party. Oh yeah, that's yeah. I knew I knew I'd heard the term, but I couldn't remember exactly who they were. I have not heard of this. The book talks about them a little bit, but more importantly, it talks about them through the lens of Yipple, the Youth International Party line, like a phone party line. Mm -hmm. which a lot of freaks were doing. Like they were basically setting up conferencing before conferencing was a thing. They were setting up party lines before party lines were a thing. <laughs> and they publish a zine that has a lot of things. And there's a scan of one page or like a flyer in the book. And I found a lot of things in this book very incredible to read and know that they were happening in the 70s compared to now with things going on with law enforcement and the government and so part of it a snippet is like the phone company's part in the war against the poor the non-white the non-conformist and in general against the people mm -hmm. we will report on all of our finances from time to time at the zine and if you can dig it we'll probably need some kind of bail fund set up because they know that they're going to get prosecuted for sharing <laughs> things like how to build a blue box and yeah conspiring to wow. defraud the phone company um there's a footnote in the book that talks about how many people interviewed use the phrase are getting arrested by the phone company and the author is like imagine how weird it would say to be to say i got arrested by google yeah. but at the time that was very common because it was just kind of understood that the phone company was like tight twins with the government and would get people arrested that seems so insane to me looking at it from today <laughs> like the just the notion that the phone company is like the man feels the phone weird. company <laughs> you know, like they don't i mean if you didn't know all this the phone company seems like just you know an innocuous entity designed to sell you access to other people's voice and that's it well, it's right. also like from our perspective and like when we grew up in relation to 
the popularity of landlines and all that, like it, it now seems antiquated. And so like mm -hmm. thinking of them as any kind of authority or like, like a national power, right. <laughs> the landline phone right. company, it's like, really things, things have changed so much and it's like, so not a thing that even really exists much anymore. And to think, wow, like how far they've fallen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They eventually get broken up. Like the monopoly finally gets broken up. And so like, Pack Bell, Bell South, a lot of companies that you might remember existing as like your landline. Yeah. We're all parts that were split up out of AT&T and, and Bell systems. I don't think I realized that. I didn't realize it was like a they, like they broke up a monopoly to do this. Yeah. I do not. I've heard of those companies. I didn't know that there was once a monopoly first. That they were sense. all just Bell at one point. That makes sense. But like, holy hell, isn't that also scary <laughs> to imagine that there's one phone company, essentially? Yeah, it was just the phone company. That's really scary, actually. Um, just, to, you know, like the entire country, more or less at the whim of the only people that do this. Right. So to continue in that vein, there is a like leftist magazine called Ramparts, okay. which was going to issue. Um, so I think like Esquire had done kind of a write up on phone freaks and like, oh, they use their little boxes. And at some point, like they start talking in the book about celebrities getting caught with blue boxes, <laughs> and, like bookies and stuff like that. So this is getting kind of mainstream. Mm -hmm. And Ramparts is like, we're going to submit an issue. And in it, along with other things, there are going to be plans to build a blue box, this thing that can make these frequencies to Get free long distance. Oh, sick. AT&T brings civil and criminal charges. And I know that technically, like, they can't bring the charges. But with a prosecutor, they level civil and criminal charges against Ramparts. Wow. And initially, they demanded that the copyright on the article be turned over to AT&T so that they could control its distribution. And that they turn over the full subscriber list to Ramparts so that they could have everyone who got their subscriber copy put under surveillance. Whoa. Well, no, that's not okay. <laughs> Holy Ramparts shit. actually, Ramparts knew that like this would be like a 10 year legal battle and, and it would be terrible. So they did actually settle and they settled on having every retail copy turned around. So like they had shipped to subscribers at this point. Mm -hmm. And they were shipping to retail points and they were like, fine, every Barnes and Noble that gets this, we'll tell them to turn it back, not to put it on the shelves. We'll take tens of thousands of dollars of loss and all this ad revenue that we now can't distribute. Mm -hmm. And the book sums this up as an act of censorship that the CIA, FBI and others had not been able to do in 10 years, but was achieved by Pacific Bell. <laughs> That's so of, Like silencing the press. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's lots of like, I mean, I don't know. We there's lots of information that gets circulated that like is not at a company's interest that they have no way to completely shut down like this. Um, I I can't imagine. I can't. I just can't imagine. <laughs> like the the. I'm glad that they didn't give up their subscriber list at least. Um, but I can't imagine like any company managing to successfully like you know, so so completely. Uh, influence like that. It's pretty <laughs> incredible. 
Well, it's like there's there's laws in place about monopolies now, right? Like, the, and and so it's just like incredible to think about. <laughs> I think it's, it's interesting though to also think lately. about. I think Elizabeth Warren is leading a campaign to like break up Amazon, right? Uh-huh. Microsoft gets brought up. Yeah, lots of companies right now are technology companies that are grown out of phones and modems that we're having yeah, this conversation about again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's it's still it's not a non-existent issue even in current times. Right. Sure. So to to bind those things together, Steve Wozniak designed a blue box with Steve Jobs. Steve Woz actually wrote the foreword for both Exploding the Phone and I think maybe Kevin Mitnick's book. Oh, really? Um and on the back of Exploding the Phone there's a pull quote, if we hadn't made blue boxes, there would have been no Apple from Steve Jobs. Uh Steve Jobs, according to Wozniak, came up with a plan to sell these blue boxes for $170 a pop. Wow. $170 back then also is a little (laughs) little bit pricier even than it is now, obviously. Yeah, and they would go around basically a college campus and like knock on a door and be like, oh, is Bob here? And they'd be like, Bob, no. And they'd be like, oh, the kid that makes the free phone calls? And then the person would be like, what? (laughs) And they would be like, oh, free long distance phone calls with one of these. (laughs) 170 bucks oh. if you want it and i guess that's just um, silly tactic but uh, i'm sure it worked <laughs> it definitely worked and then they also offered a warranty basically so wozniak would write or type a piece of paper that said he's got the whole world in his hands inside and if it was returned to them not working with that intact where he put it he would fix it um, and apparently this got filed in a bunch of FBI paperwork of like, we don't know who's doing this, but they all have this piece of paper inside. What does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. With a little signature. Eventually, yeah. And eventually the Apple II, I don't know if this was in production, but it was at least designed. Somebody designed an add-on circuit board that would let you connect your Apple II to a phone line. And it could basically be a blue box. It could send like the touch tone frequencies it could recognize some sounds coming from the phone mm-hmm. uh, and kind of made it like the ultimate blue box. Eventually, they started calling home PCs with modems beige boxes. Oh. That like peak 90s beige office yeah. stuff. That's interesting. Yeah. God, this is like so central to like maybe why people were interested in computing, right? There's a lot of these like sort of right. hacker minded people that like fueled the beginning of like home computing yeah and this very clearly led to like bulletin boards and bbs forums yeah i was gonna say the beginning of the internet really was for like uh the few people who were like very very interested in it Mm -hmm. for the technical aspects of it and everything that it could do like the internet was for internet lovers at the beginning because those were the only people who really knew about it and thought about you know the I still remember remember when laptops got really big or like in particular, they were calling them notebooks. And I remember having like internet friends who were like, now everybody's going to be on the internet and not just people (laughs) who are willing to build a desktop PC to get online. And I was like, yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There was, yeah, there was a bit of an exclusivity to that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember it from my early days on a dial up. That, connection you know that sentiment still exists in some form or, or another of you know there's like <laughs> for sure there's like the you know the 
people who look around at everyone else as normies and uh, <laughs> you have no interest in like, you know, uh, crossing paths with them. Right. Well, um, since I brought up dial-up modems, I wanted to ask, uh, mm. everybody's dial-up modem kind of sounds the same. Do you think that one of you, maybe Dave, <laughs> could give me an imitation of what a dial-up modem sounded like at the time? <sighs> All right. Let's see. Let me try that. <clears throat> I think I could do this. Uh, let's see. It was like, right. So that was kind of the back end of it. I remember it as always having the like beep boop beep boop beep boop bop. Yeah. At the beginning, and it was so loud. Yeah. And it would always at my home like drop out late at night when I wasn't supposed to be on the internet anymore or on the computer or awake, and I would have to redial, and it would be so loud. Yeah. Right. So annoying. Yeah. So that. It sounded cool. like if if the demon if a demon was in your phone line, <laughs> that's what it sounded like. It I was, was really. I always awful. thought it sounded like, honest to God, when I was a kid, and I know this is a little naive. I thought it was space sounds. <laughs> I thought something was going to space because also AOL, uh, which was like my first you know internet service provider, displayed that little animatic kind of sequence while it was dialing and it goes like through step one and two and three and there's a little pictographic representation of like the whole world and stuff yeah and, and so part of me just thought like am i hearing the echoes of space what is this <laughs> so i got curious while i was reading this and i kind of just googled like how did dial-up modems work and why did they make noise and yeah. uh on youtube yeah. the account the sacred gamer actually does a really good explanation and it's titled why does dial-up sound the way it does and the book talks about this a little bit towards the end and that is basically your computer and your modem using the band of sound available on a telephone line which is tuned to the human voice it doesn't go very deep and it doesn't go very high it pretty much sits in the range of sound that we speak in and it's mm -hmm. using that and it's saying like i'm gonna dial this number that i dial up to and then the recipient goes be like hey what are you and all of these sounds like there's the dial tone there's the dial of it connecting that like <laughs> the really high pitch part of that is it turning off echo suppression because when you talk it didn't want the sound from the earpiece of a landline like handheld thing echoing into the speaking part um, but okay. if you have echo suppression on with data, it could corrupt your data. So it has to send the exact high pitch tone that says turn off echo suppression. And it's, it's, it's two data Whoa. components using noises that are in the bandwidth <laughs> of human to each voice other. to send information. And it's incredible. And I love it. That is trippy. It, That's it, really it's, cool. It's, if machines had voices, this is what they are. Right. Like this is like machines given a humanish voice and a language we don't speak. Yeah. I, I lost everybody's incoming audio for a minute. Oh, no. Can you hear us oh. now? I, I did yes. that earlier. I was saying I, I, I really, really like the idea of that. It's so cool. I it love it. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then in like the late 70s to early 80s, the switching system was changed and it pretty much killed off the functionality of using sounds much like your dial modem did to manipulate how the phone system worked. Hmm. Um, I did find one instance in this book of somebody turning phone freaking, which was illegal at the time into a job 
it was Joe Ingressia who was blind or maybe is blind. I guess I don't know if he's alive. I assume he is still blind if he is alive. Okay. Uh, he got a job with an independent local phone company um, after he dialed NORAD to get on Ooh. somebody's radar. Uh, <laughs> and then while he suspected and assumed his phone was tapped, he would just like pick up the phone and be like, gonna get a blue box and get a job up to no good yada 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 um he was charged with two counts of malicious mischief he didn't recommend this path to a job he was like yes it worked but i don't think it was the best way to do it okay Okay, so like he's like also you could apply for one and do an interview but i decided to do this (laughs) that's at least one case of like someone actually doing that right that's that's something. Yeah, it's still not an offer from the FBI for hacking, but it's it's not dissimilar. <laughs> wow. Holy cow. I feel like I feel like now more like I I thought that after all of this that I would know everything I needed to know about uh this like 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 blue boxes and stuff like this, but now I feel like I I have to know even more. Like I'm definitely very curious about like you know, like reading that book in particular. It's yeah, the, it's the, the Atlantic, application side that like blows my mind. Yeah, the Atlantic also did an article titled "Whatever Happened to the Phone Freaks," uh, which is kind of a summary. I think they interviewed the author of this book and just did like a shorter version of it that talks about it. Um, I also have another article written down. The Denver Post ran an article titled "Kevin Mitnick was the FBI's most wanted hacker in the '90s. He was hiding in plain sight in Denver," which talks about him like putting rocks in his shoe to to not have his gate yeah. recognized. That's that's commitment. Yeah. Like, I'm not going anywhere with rocks in my shoes. I don't care it's what so I do. Also, I'm sorry if you can hear it, but Bo is basically doing his best impression of dial-up internet in the background. <laughs> no, I didn't hear much, no. And trying to fight with Leroy. I hate I hate this life. Um. <laughs> Aww, that's not true. I I hate this life when I'm trying to podcast. Yeah, they make it difficult in the living room. It's just like impossible to do anything. Well, I mean, speaking of that, we are coming up on just about three hours of solid podcast yeah. content. I've been monopolizing my living room, and you've been forcing your dogs to be quiet for a long time. So I think it's fair <laughs> that they're probably starting to act out. Yeah, now they're they uh basically. I think uh, they don't like being split up for long either. So that's yeah. They they really want to go outside because I just fed them dinner, so they just they want to go outside. Um, so I guess then the question is: Do you feel like is there anything that uh, that you left out that you really wanted to, to say, or um, how do you uh, how do you feel about this? Where we are with this topic? I mean, I'm sad that I couldn't find an answer that was satisfactory to me to my question but i think that you know if they are if they are flipping really elite hackers maybe the <laughs> fbi just isn't publicizing it because they don't want to encourage people to break into stuff to get a job yeah i did enjoy all of my reading i do recommend everything that i brought up with the caveats that i stated of like yeah. some weirdness I was going to say the side benefit is like you you read three good books and learned about a bunch of cool shit you probably wouldn't have otherwise looked into. So, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, it's true. I mean, you no didn't complaints. get the answer you wanted, but you still learned shit. That's I'm always in it for the learning. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. No regrets. See, now I'm in it for like... No regrets. I would like to know, like, like who's doing the equivalent of this right now. Like, in a mostly non-malicious, kind of, like, just enthusiastic, hobbyist way, who is screwing around with the systems available to us now, you know? Yeah. That's kind of... I've definitely seen a small contingent of people who are getting into ham radio stuff and getting ham radio operator licenses. I've certainly thought about mm-hmm. it. Um... Yeah, you know, I saw something recently about uh, ham radio and the Raspberry Pi, but I don't really know what that was about. It's some kind of, like, enthusiast project. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of it is, like, Raspberry Pi and Adafruit-type projects and things like that. Huh. I, a quick Google search revealed to me a book called Raspberry Pi for Secret Agents. Yes, <laughs> yes please. <laughs> That's me. I like it. Um, well, okay, uh, so then, I guess in the interest of getting these dogs outside, and, uh, getting, <laughs> getting some dinner in me, uh, uh, let's, let's maybe wrap this episode up, but thank you so much for the insane amount of reading that you did for this episode. Yeah, I, I mean, it's okay. <laughs> oh, man, I envy you, because, like, I want to, I like reading, and I want to read. I do not have the attention span for it. <laughs> also, I have undiagnosed ADHD, but <laughs> it makes it really difficult to do that thing that I really miss doing. So the fact that you read not just one, but three books for this podcast is impressive and awesome to me. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. This is a good episode. Well, thank you for letting me stay on for like a full hour per <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... Hey, we it was interesting to us. Our guest we episodes wanted... are always longer for like yeah. for this reason. Like we like to kind of indulge in them a bit, you know? And we also like we want to give you room to tell the things you want to tell because we also interrupt a bunch and say dumb shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was really helpful though, because I didn't really have like a story theme. You know, to knit them all together. So questions were good. I was hoping for questions. Yeah, there's some great A segues in there. (laughs) Yeah, I really enjoyed the fact that it seemed like the dumb shit we were saying actually segued into where you were going next. So good (laughs) job on that. (laughs) We have to go back through and give those uh, segues uh, some some grades. I'm going to grade them by uh, just how (laughs) how, uh, spontaneous and effective they were. This will all be in the episode description. It will not. (laughs) (laughs) um but uh yeah thank you again for being our guest this was super cool um thank you for having me i hope to return and in a you know if the if the current climate ever eases up of being frightening i would love to continue and come back and actually finish out my state claim on ted kaczynski but oh yeah yeah yeah. that'd be awesome you you it's just so gosh darn heavy for right now i you know uh yeah, the world needs uh, less Kaczynski for sure right now. <laughs> I don't know how the, the right way is to say that, but. <laughs> As opposed to in six months when Dave anticipates we will need more Kaczynski. Yeah, more. there may come a time very soon where we need to turn up the Kaczynski meter a bit. But for now, not so much. And on that shining note, I'm going to hang yeah. up. Alrighty. Thank uh, you for having me. Well, yes. this has this has been Goose Chase. Goose Chase. Goose Chase. Goose <laughs> Chase. Uh, yep. Thank you again. Uh, we'll be back in another a couple of weeks, probably, with another episode. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, bye bye. Bye bye.
You've been listening to Goose Chase. We are Goose Chase Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. On Twitter, our handle is at GooseChasePod, and our website is www.GooseChasePodcast.com. If you have any topics you'd like us to research, please email us at GooseChasePodcast at gmail.com. If you like what we do on the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. Want to go on a goose chase? Ooh, yes. 